think like the next like big big one that'll be more than three parts yeah will be either the zodiac or jeffrey Dahmer. probably the zodiac because the zodiac is really interesting and there's so many theories like i could just go <sighs> oh for God. hours they'll all give the me an excuse to just watch a jake gyllenhaal oh yeah that's such a good movie too it's yeah. such a good movie i love that movie I love the fucking Anyways. opening. The fucking opening to that movie. Oh my god. It, it's a good time. It's, it's a good, good time and a scary time. It's a good time. fucking time. Okay. All right. Well, let's just get into this. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Hello. Well, welcome to Anyways, How's Your Sex Life? We are your slutty hosts. I'm Channa. I'm Corey. And welcome, everybody. Today we welcome, have little bitches. Simone right next to me, snuggling my legs really intensely. S'mores is oh. paying attention to Jordan. And Ghost Toulouse is probably here. He's here. But welcome, y'all. So first things first, I have a very quick announcement for you guys. Yes. Um, obviously, since you follow us, you ha- you've realized that there has been a two-week gap between this episode and our last episode. Um, basically, the reason, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but we had a COVID scare at our work. Um, so for about like a week and a half, well, one, Corey and I had to get tested for coronavirus. We're both negative. What's up? But two- What's up? Um, both Corey and I had to work insane amount of hours over the past like week and a half um, just because we had to limit people at the warehouse. Okay, whatever. It doesn't matter. But anyways, um, we obviously didn't have time to record because work has to take priority sometimes. So well, yeah. sorry, guys, that we weren't able to record at all. But we're back. Everything's okay now. We're fine. <laughs> I edited okay. out, just for y'all, just so y'all know, I edited out the part where I tried to... Sp- <laughs> tried to do this but Chana's just gonna do this <laughs> <laughs> this is why we leave the announcements to me everybody mm-hmm, <laughs> it's okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all right now this is Corey's baby movie mondays uh, yeah. everybody but i'm just gonna announce it because Corey's like a whole bottle deep of champagne mm. and here we are and we've already talked about this for like 40 minutes we, we literally <laughs> had a 20 minute discussion about this <laughs> okay so all that you guys need to worry about is, are these couple dates so first things first every monday um go to our instagram look at our instagram story and you're going to be able to vote in a poll for which movie um to watch throughout the next week um for example sharknado piranha whatever that wednesday so two days later we will officially announce the movie through instagram um and then on friday when we when we release our podcast by the way we release fridays now but we'll get to that in a second um, if you don't follow us on Instagram, that's when you would hear it. You would hear, okay, the movie's Piranha. Huzzah. The next Monday, um, we'll have some polls about, like, you know, funny polls about the movie that we all watched. And we'll also have a poll that asks for the next movie. And then again, the next Wednesday, we would then announce the movie on Instagram, record it in our podcast. You guys would hear about it on Friday, etc. Yeah. So key dates for you to remember. Monday, we pick the movie. Wednesday, we announce on Instagram. Friday, we announce it. Um, through the podcast so definitely follow us on instagram because you're going to be getting a lot more out of the movie mondays than you would if you just listen to us and our instagram is ahysl podcast and that is the same as our facebook and twitter you could also just type in anyways has your sex life and it'll pull up for you so definitely follow us on instagram because you will be involved in picking the movie you'll be involved in the funny polls you can comment and, and interact with other podcast fans on the instagram post about it so definitely follow us on Instagram because you will get a lot more out of it. In addition to that, too, just the only thing to say is that every Friday at the same time when on the podcast we announce the new movie, we're also talking about the movie that we that did last week. Pick so basically week every Friday that you hear the movie, the movie that's chosen, um, the next Friday is when we will talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. 
So follow us on Instagram. Obviously, keep on listening to our podcast. And it's going to be super fun. It's a way for all of us to watch movies together, stay connected, especially during these times yep. like the coronavirus, and just have a lot of fun watching really crazy, awesome horror films. And they vary. It's not like we're going to make you guys watch The Conjuring every single week. Oh, God, no, we yeah. Want you to. There'll be funny it's shit. It's going to vary. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all going to be like under the like umbrella of horror films, whether exactly. it's like a campy horror or like a really scary one. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. So that's movie Mondays. Um, oh, wait, um, the, really quick. Can I interrupt? Um, yeah. Just just to like clear the air of The Ritual. The Ritual is the movie that we've already picked. And this podcast that you're hearing right now is not going to come out on the Friday schedule that Shannon's about to about to talk about. So our ritual, our, our movie for this week is The Ritual. Um, but then you'll have the new podcast come out on Friday that will announce this new movie and w- when we'll actually talk about The Ritual. So the podcast right now, we will not talk about The Ritual. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, now, our next... <laughs> if you're confu- if it's confused, just fucking get on Instagram, you bitch. <laughs> yeah, if you're confused, get on Instagram. Uh, slide into our DMs and message us, and we'll explain it more. We're sorry yeah. we're drunk. Um, I'll also do a post uh, about it on Instagram that explains this in, like, detail with examples and shit. So, yeah, just check our Instagram. Just go follow us on social media. We're thirsty. Next announcement, obviously, since you have heard it now, like, in weird six different ways since we're so drunk... We are going to start posting episodes on Friday. Now, I know we announced about, like, probably four or five episodes ago we're going to do Tuesdays. But um, we decided that we actually want to release episodes closer to when we actually record them. So you guys are more involved with our actual lives instead of us being like, what we're going to do in the future. You actually, like, know what the fuck's going on. So um, starting soon, we will be releasing episodes every Friday. Um, This might change mid-summer. Um, just, it depends on Corey's editing schedule, but we'll let you guys know, obviously, but expect at least ongoing for the next three months, um, expect the podcast to be released on Fridays and it's anytime Friday. Like I'm not saying Friday, six o'clock in the morning. I'm saying it's gonna It's going to be released guys. Friday. Yeah. Like we have jobs. <laughs> we have jobs and like, sometimes we have to work 12 hours and yeah, it's fine. We, we don't have, we don't have. Ooh. <laughs> Champagne pop, pop we my pussy. Yeah, we don't have somebody else recording and editing this. It's it's me. It's so. Corey. Yeah, <laughs> Corey does the editing. I do the social media, so we're constantly doing this. So Friday's episode will be released. So yeah, get ready. It's Bitch. gonna be a good little foreplay for your weekend. Two weeks ago, we announced listener stories, and I gave you guys the date of May twenty fourth. Oh shit! So now the new date to get episodes to us by is june 7th so send us your listener stories by june 7th the easiest and best way for you to send it to us is through email which is ahyslpodcast@gmail.com. otherwise i might lose it the classic example is someone sent me one through facebook and i didn't see it until like our oh, third fuck. or second listener stories so send it to us through email because that's the easiest way for me to organize everything if you absolutely can't for whatever reason send it to us through instagram because I do check her Instagram DMs or like even just send me a message on Instagram and be like, how do I send this? And I'll just direct you to no. our email or our website. You can even go to our website, ahyslpodcast.com. But either way, we're looking for 13 listener stories. So make sure if you have a true crime story, a supernatural story, a sex story, anything that you think we would talk about on this podcast, send it to us send and we it. will definitely tell you about it. Fuck Did you. Yeah. edit? No, I said send it. <laughs> oh. Okay. Now we're done. Announcement's done. Yay. So my fact of fact today, my affogato fact, is on the history of fetishism. 
Um, I might not pronounce fetishism correctly later on because I am past a bottle of champagne in this. Um, so nice. we're going to do the etymology of actual fetishism, which I didn't know was a thing, before we get to sexual fetishism. Because there's a whole, like, I've already pronounced what? it cr- incorrect. I know, right? I, uh, like, it, it's in- this is actually pretty interesting. At least I think it is. Okay. So a fetish <laughs> is an object believed to have supernatural powers or more specifically a human-made object that has power over others. So even in a more, we'll get to this a little bit later, but a more like easy layman's modern term is just a fetish is an object that has power or that people give power to. So you can already see how this is going to translate into sexual fetishism. Um, The term fetish, basically to sum it up really quickly, has evolved from an idiom that people used to use in the 1700s, 1600s. Um, and it came from the interactions between European travelers going to uh, going to Africa and then bringing back these talismans or bringing back these um, items and stuff um, that the that the native peoples of Africa used or, or still today probably and used to uh, worship or hold supernatural powers to. Um, Oh. It was it used it played a like central role in the perception and study of non-Western art um, in general and and in Africa and 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 African art in particular. So um, that gets a little uh, that gets a little technical. Um, sort of this. I'm trying to be a little bit more technical instead of paraphrase because this get this like teeters the line of some like of racism to a point because fetishism has mm. is has a lot of. Uh, or non-sexual fetishism has a lot of racial um, problems in it, embedded in it, because that's what fet- that's where fetishism came from. So I'm trying to be more technical yeah. and read from text instead of sub- uh, like paraphrasing my own words. Okay, so this guy named William Pietz argues that the, the term originated in the coast of West Africa during the 16th and 17th centuries, and that the fetishes as a concept was elaborated to demonize the supposed arbitrary attachment of West Africans to material objects. Therefore, it also demonizes the culture that they had with attachments to these objects. So basically to build a story off of what of that technical stuff is this guy sees that the interactions between Europeans and Africans in the 16th and 17th centuries developed this term called fetishism where um, the white, basically the white man would see native Africans being like, oh, hey, we have these idols, these objects, these talismans that we give power. And they basically are religion. And then the European would immediately be like, oh, well, they don't really have a God. They don't, ha- they don't have Christ. So they oh. can't really think that well. And so they don't really oh. have gods, but they give these talismans or these fetishes power, these objects power. So these objects have supernatural mm-hmm. power. And that is the extent, literally, like literally, there's a quote where, um, just a second, I'm getting ahead of myself, <laughs> drunk. No, I'm, 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 I'm digging this. Okay. So, um, so basically they're like, Hey, the, these, these native peoples of Africa can, are, are like not developed enough because they have, they can only give power to these objects or these idols that they make because they can't abstractly think and think abstractly enough to develop a God. It is like, it's super mm. racist. It's super horrible. Fuck. Um, so we're moving on. <laughs> so uh, this, con- okay. yeah, this concept was popularized in Europe circa 1757. Um, when this French writer named Charles de Brosis, I've, I've horribly pronounced that, used it in a, used it when comparing West African religion to the magical aspects of ancient Egyptians. Later, 
a guy named Auguste uh, uh, Comte. Uh, he's an important philosopher that we've all at least heard Comte, like in philosophy. Okay. Yeah. He uh, when uh, it was later like super solidified when he used it and employed the concept of of fetishism in his theory of the evolution of religion. And this is this is it where he proposed he poised that fetishism is the earliest or most primitive stage of religion followed by polytheism and then monotheism. So you can already see where this is like a European being like, okay, we're mostly Christian. We believe in a monotheistic God. And then like there's polytheism where we have like multiple gods. Like you would think the Parthenon um, in Greek mythology and stuff like that. And then even lower than that are what these native Africans are doing with, with fetishism. So it's just very, you can already see it's super, super based in racism. So next, um, sexual fetishism is about... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, so where do we get sexual fetishism? Okay, so I've yeah, been talking how, about... Where does that happen? Like, <laughs> jump from that to sexual fetishism? Oh, I know, we're jumping, because <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> did you so hear what on. I... Did you hear the last two sentences I said? Like, fuck that. <laughs> we're yeah, moving so on. So moving on, people are into, like, teacher porn, and we're yeah. just going to continue on from there. <laughs> I'm like that's the next thing I say. <laughs> so teacher <laughs> so professor what's your fetish? <laughs> Okay. So I've been talking a lot about the 1600s and the latter 1700s or the latter 18th century. So let's jump to the mid latter 19th century, the the 1800s. So with the light in the light of psychology developing into a real thing, we start to see more realistic focus on the relationship of objects having an effect or power over people. Um, so basically what is going on is people are like, okay, psychology is a thing. We're going to look at how uh, people, people's minds developed. Oh, well, let's like look at fetishism and not, you know, really put God or racism into it and be like, hey, let's look at how people give objects, any object power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the power that this will then have over people and how that develops in people's psyche. So in 1887, there's a psychologist by the name of Alfred Binet. He's actually the person who created the first practical IQ test. Um, he oh. used he is the first person in 1887 to use fetishism in erotic context. Um, Ooh, so this daddy. is where fetishism is starting to turn into what we would think of it nowadays. Um, Alfred yeah. Binet suspected fetishism was the pathological result of associations. Um, he argued that in certain vulnerable individuals, so there's already a like connotation to fetishism, an emotional arousing experience with the fetish object in childhood could lead to fetishism. <laughs> okay, so let's go to like some different thoughts and causes of, of fetishism. Um, there isn't one specified cause for fetishism to start out. Fetishism usually uh, becomes evident during puberty. Um, but many develop it prior to that and most, you know, and anybody can develop a fetishism later in life as well. Um, there's some dude, there's some two dudes you don't give a fuck about their names. They believe that fetishism. <laughs> well, I feel real sad for those guys. They're like, what the, they're like, they like, should I say their name? Should I say their first theory? name and then butcher the rest of their names? <laughs> I don't know. It's almost funnier if you don't, but like, just think of these two dudes way back then. Just think of these two like, fucking dudes. This profound theory and in the eighteen hundreds. Like fuckheads in twenty twenty, being like, whatever, fuck their names. Like they didn't have, guys. they didn't even have fucking microwaves, y'all. <laughs> Was sliced bread even a thing back then? Right. Um. <laughs> Like, did they even see a movie? I don't know if they even saw a movie. <laughs> yeah. 
Did they um, even know that being gay was okay yet? Right? No. <laughs> they didn't. Um, they didn't. <laughs> Newsflash. Unless they were we gay themselves. Serious. They didn't. They didn't. <laughs> um, so they believe that fetishism arose from associative experiences, but they also disagreed on what type uh, of type of predisposition to the experiences was necessary to like create an association. Um, there's a guy named, uh, there's a sexologist, Magnum Hirschfield, who followed another line of thought and I actually really like this one. So he followed another line of thought where he proposed his theory of partial attractiveness in 1920. So according to this argument, sexual attractiveness never originates in a person as a whole, but always in the product of the interaction of individual features. He stated that nearly everyone has special interests and thus suffered from a healthy kind of fetishism, while only detaching and overvaluing of a single feature resulted in pathological fetishism. So, like, I think that's a pretty good modern thought to it, where it's like, I mean, I'm going to go on a little bit more, but that's just like, I love men. But I love the neck of men. I love Adam's apples of men. I love beards. I love hair. I love their fucking faces. I love dicks. I love balls. You know, all of that. But, like, if I just love balls slapping my chin and that's the only thing that could get me off, that would be a fetish. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, while that gets me off, <laughs> while balls slapping like, my chin is right hot. I'll be right back. <laughs> BRB. I'm like, You're- please, please send your ball slapping videos, too. <laughs> So we also get to Sigmund, even Sigmund Freud got on this, and his is just shitty, but we're going to bring Duh, it up he, because fucks Of course fuck he got into it. What fuck else him. did he not get into? <laughs> so Sigmund, He's like, also, you want to fuck your mother? <laughs> no, literally, this is like, yeah, this is it. Mom. So Freud believed that sexual fetishism in men derived from the unconscious fear of the mother's genitals, from yeah, men's okay. universal fear of castration, and oh my Lord. from a man's fantasy that his mother had had a penis but that it had oh. been cut off. His oh, discussion God. of sexual fetishism in women does not exist. <laughs> oh, because, you know, because Freud's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I'm going to go over a, one more specific person and then like sum up last three last like theories. So in 1951, Donald Winnicott presented his theory of transitional objects and phenomena, according to which child, childish actions like thumb sucking and objects like cuddling toys are a source or manifold adult behavior um, or are the source of uh, adult behavior amongst many other fetishisms. He speculated that child's transitional objects become sexualized later in life. So like maybe like to be like ridiculous, like this is ridiculous. Like let's just say as a really basic example is like maybe I used to like sucking my thumb a shit ton because I love sucking dick. Like that's super basic and super bastardized version of what he's talking about. But who cares? We're drunk. We're moving on. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Like that's a good. And I would say like I would say none of these people are wrong except for Freud. (laughs) Except for Freud. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> He's like, also, did I mention you want to fuck your mother? You're like, yes, you already mentioned I'm that. Like, oh, my like, fucking every, God. <laughs> every single theory that you have involves having sex with my mom. Yes, literally. You, you mentioned it. <laughs> um, Just because pooping is great doesn't mean I want to get fucked in the butt by my mom. <laughs> Um, so let's just go over three generalized theories instead of like actual specific things that some guys talked about. So one is called classical conditioning. Um, this is what you would think about just knowing just basic knowledge. There have been several experiments in which men specifically have been conditioned to show arousal, arousal to stimuli like boots, 
geometric shapes, and even penny jars just by pairing these cues with with porn. Like they've huh. literally just like that like I would just assume you would just show porn and then like hand a guy a fucking penny jar and then do that for like months over. Like this is a very again a bastardized example. Like conditioning is just like you know yeah, we've all read the peas or, or like the dog you know ringing the bell and having the dog salivate. You know we've all yeah. read high school biology shit like that. Okay. Yeah. Um. However, there are people that argue with this because uh, conditioning alone can't explain fetishism because it does not result in a fetishism for most people. Um, they p- most people assume that conditioning combined with some other factor, other factors such as a abnormal abnormality in your sexual learning process. So, like as you're cognitively like understanding sexual stuff and like developing a sexual appetite, I guess you could say. Um, like that is what more creates it more than just basic classical conditioning. Um, there's also one that's called a sexual imprinting that proposes that humans learn to recognize sexually desirable features and activities during childhood. So fetishism can result mm. when a child is imprinted with an overly narrow or incorrect concept of such objects. That is probably like a dated because if you're like narrow or incorrect concept, it gives a, you know, negative connotation to having a fetish um so that's probably dated i would assume um imprinting seems to occur during the child's earliest experiences with arousal and desire and it is based on a quote an egocentric evaluation of salient reward or pleasure related characteristics that differ differ from one individual or to another (laughs) so yeah that's not my Whoa. writing because I don't fucking write like that. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> this is wiki. <laughs> yeah, this is wiki. We write like, yes, la, 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 la. Yeah. Kiss me, bitch. <laughs> Fuck you. Woo, bro. Um, so basically gift. it's just like, yeah. So like, I guess imprinting. So that's just what we sort of said. What we, we all would assume in like modern thinking is just like, you know, your desires and your personalities, just like your fetishisms or not, if you don't have fetishisms, would come from your nurture, being nurtured by parents and like the environment they grew up in. Plus, like your nature, your your genetics or your predisposition to like something genetically or whatever. Um, so basically, they're just saying is this one is leaning on nature of like, oh, when you were growing up, what happened to you? Did you like somehow was there like a misstep or a mislink in your connection to like carrots and sex, something like that, you know? And that is again, yeah. this example is with a, a negative connotation to fetishism, which we don't hold obviously, except for scatting. <laughs> Yeah, except for Scott. Fuck you. (laughs) Okay, I'm almost done. Sorry, this is a little heavy. Um, So my last one is actually a little bit more just scientifically based. It's called Neurological Differences. Basically, um, this dude uh, observed that the region processing sensory input from the feet lies immediately next to the region processing your genital stimulation within your brain. That's not a lie. That's where it is. Like, your feet... Uh, the, 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 let's just say to super bastardize it, uh, the gray matter that processes genital stimulation is immediately next to the gray matter that processes or sensory input to your feet. And so this suggests that there is an accidental link that happens in your development, um, somehow, whether by conditioning or by growing up of sexual imprinting or whatever, to where you get sexually aroused and that is a and they use this example as being possibly true because there is out of all the fetishes foot fetish is the most prevalent so that's the one you always think of when you think fetish oh yeah literally that's like the instant most fetish people think of 
Um, Which is so, really interesting. Consider- oh, this is this is blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah, so they're like, right oh, now. hey, maybe like this neurological difference is actually has some foot has some footing. A good one, Corey. Every listener should probably just like clicked out of our podcast from that. They're like, you fuckers. Oh my god. Yeah, you dumb. Um, they even have one. Uh, there's like one recorded case that's crazy intense where there's the anterior. They did an anterior temporal lobectomy, uh, uh, that relieved an epileptic man's fetish for safety pins. I don't know how that translates to like you know support this theory or hypothesis, but but like whatever. But okay, we're here, and our and our. Our like neuroscientist Pacey's neurons. Yeah, about right. This. So yeah, that's like that. That's like the more scientific or just like you know academic look at fetishes. Uh, I've done some fun little shit things on them. Um, I decided to do that today too because on May eighth was the hundredth birthday of Tom of Finland. Um, if you are gay and you don't know who that is, I don't know how. Unless you are recently have come out. Um, Unless Tom, you're new gay. Look up Tom of Finland. Tom of Finland as the country. Um, that is his like, you know, author or like artist name. He has a ton of sexual um, like leather fetish art that he did, that he drew. And it was actually some of the first art that I saw uh, like getting online and trying to look at porn. And if you could give a good uh, support of the imprint theory hypothesis, I was looking at this stuff when I was like 15. And to this day, I still like, I like the leather aesthetic, the macho, policeman with like a leather harness and like a mustache and aviators like that still turns me the fuck on so yeah there you go um it was his hundredth birthday he's he has died he has passed um but it was his hundredth birthday uh may 8th okay now let's get let's get into my spooky scoop so uh the polar opposite of Corey's fetishes and i'm always the opposite of Corey with whatever subject he picks i'm choosing Today, the top five poisons for murder. <gasps> Ooh, that's fun. <laughs> so if, if, I know, and that's why I, we I'm have actually, this podcast. I'm like, ooh, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually like really shook at that I haven't talked about this before, and this like sparked like a bunch of spooky scoops for me because yes. uh, spooky scoops are hard. Like I'm gonna level with you guys; they're really hard because uh, there's only so many like dead person facts I can list. And a lot of the spooky scoops can become full segments, so it's hard for me to be like, yeah, I want to just make this a spooky scoop opposed to make it a full episode. So I'm, like, really pumped about this one. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the five best poisons to kill someone. So if you want to murder someone, listen up. But also, if you're just interested, <laughs> also listen up. But you didn't get it from us because we, yeah. we do not encourage you to kill anybody. You got all of this from PBS.org. Yeah. So, so sue them, <laughs> not me. Um, I'm actually going to be reading this, like, quote-unquote from PBS.org because uh, I researched for more than, like, 12 hours on my episode, so I just had to just copy and paste shit yes. from my scoop. So here we are. So don't sue me, PBS.org, because I'm quoting you. Uh. All right. Number one. Are you guys ready? I don't think they or can because it's s- literally the public broadcasting system. That's true. Okay, I'll start at number five. How about that? Then we'll go up to number Ooh, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go down to number one. Yeah, let's start All at right. five. And I'll obviously talk about more poisons because this is really interesting to me. Because you never know who you have to kill someone with poison. Okay, anyways. Number five is thallium. So, this element was only discovered in the 1860s. And while it has been used in some domestic murders, 
You know, in some countries, it has even been available as rat poison. Um, it has been more widely used as an agent of assassination. <laughs> it is an uh, it, it is ideal in this respect. Ooh. Thallium sulfate is water soluble and tasteless, and it takes several days for the symptoms to even appear. What the fuck? And even and even then, these are generally attributed to other illnesses. So the poison was used by Saddam Hussein's secret police um, and by the Russian KBG. Damn, so, so you know that's effective. <laughs> so it's fucking effective. So if you like don't want to get caught, use thallium. You just pop it in your in that fucker's water. They don't taste it, and then like three days later, boom, they have the stomach flu, and then boom, they died from the stomach flu. Oh wait, no, they died from thallium. Oh my god. Number four, cyanide. So cyanide can be distilled from the kernels of certain nuts, such as almonds, and also present in the leaves of some laurel bushes. Oh, wow. I had no idea. The the industrial chemical sodium cyanide is widely used, especially in mining, mining, and has been involved in attempted mass murders. It was used to contaminate Tylenol capsules in the U.S. in the 1980s, um, which, if you're, like, at all familiar with true crime, you've heard about, like, the Tylenol murders and stuff. Um, and then it's also killed several people in Chicago area. Um, cyanide has also featured in domestic murders, and it causes death within minutes. Um, it is the fastest acting of all poisons, and for this reason, it is the poison of suicide pills of the type created oh, by yeah. secret agents. Yikes. Yikes. Next is um, strychnine or strychnine. I don't know how to pronounce it. because Strychnine? I mean, yeah. I obviously don't know how to pronounce half the shit we say on this podcast, especially last names. Anyways, oh my God. strychnine can be extracted from the seeds of the Nux vomica plant, or sorry, the Nux vomica tree, which grows in Southeast Asia, um, and it became widely available in the West as trade with the Far um, East expanded. It is reputed to be a tonic and prescribed in small doses by doctors to aid um, covalence <laughs> Okay. Um, it was also widely used to poison rats and other animals, um, and such was easily obtained. And although cited in only a few domestic murders, it is readily available. Um, so that suggests that it would be used in many undiscovered murders. So if you know someone that has, like, those little awful, really inhumane, like, rat poison traps, like, this is the poison that's used to Ooh. kill mice. And it's so available. I mean, you can go to fucking Home Depot and buy this shit. So, uh, yeah, it's it could definitely be used in murders because it's just so readily available. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next is atropine or atropine. This is important to note. This is the reason why I, I chose this spooky scoop because um, it's also known as belladonna, which I'm going to go through today. Oh, Belladonna is extracted from the juice of the berries of this deadly nightshade bush. That's cool. So... In small doses, this chemical causes extreme hallucinations and was used for the purpose as long ago as ancient Greece. So think of like, okay, if you've done acid or like a hallucinogenic, think of whatever you took and times that by like 50 or 100, and that's belladonna. What? Like belladonna is so intense that you trip. If you do it at a small dose, you trip for weeks and weeks on end. And the, hallucin- and the hallucinations are so intense that, okay, the example is right now, if I was in Belladonna, I could be sitting here recording the podcast and talking to Corey, 
but I could be hallucinating me on a beach talking with Corey, and it would feel real. Like I'd feel what? the sand. I'd smell. I'd smell the ocean. I don't believe like, you. The, hu- <laughs> the hallucination is so intense that like you literally cannot distinguish between reality and hallucination. Whereas with acid or shrooms or other common hallucinogenics, you can somewhat distinguish. Even if you're tripping really hard, there is a point where you're like, okay. I know I'm tripping balls, but Belladonna removes that barrier, so you no longer know what's reality or what's Whoa. tripping balls. Now, in larger doses, Belladonna is reputed to be one of the um, favorite poisons of would-be murderers in medieval Europe, and the juice of only a few berries is fatal. So it doesn't take that much to go to cross that barrier of I'm tripping balls to I'm dying. Um, <laughs> now, the symptoms it produces would easily be mistaken for any of the many fevers which afflicted people in those days. So back in medieval days, if you fucking hated your husband, give him belladonna, he's going to trip balls for an hour, then die. But people will just, will just attribute it to the cold that killed, you know, people in the medieval ages. Um, so, yeah. So keep in mind belladonna because I go over that today. Damn. And the, the number one, which you have probably guessed, is arsenic. Yes. Fun fact: I was in the play Arsenic and Old Lace. Old Lace. It's a great. It's a, it's a great. I was Elaine, the love interest. My gay boyfriend was Aww. Mortimer. Good, the good times when I uh, lost my virginity to my gay best friend. The good old days. Anyways, so arsenic, known in Roman times, was used as a poison to rival, or sorry, it was used as a poison to um, kill like rivals or even emperors. Um, now, white arsenic, which is arsenic oxide, is water-soluble and tasteless. Um, so whenever it's added to drinks, you just can't taste it. You can't even tell that you have a poison in your drink. Um, this material was obtained as a byproduct of copper and lead refining. Now, in the 1600s, it was sold by agents of a woman known as Tafana of Sicily. Okay. Um, and she would sell it to people who wished to dispose of someone, and it became known as the inheritance powder. So she'd sell them the powder. They'd put it in their... Okay, like, let's say Brittany wanted her grandma's millions. She would go to this Tiffany bitch mm. and like, yo, I want my grandma's money. Tiffany like, would give her this... Yeah, this inheritance power, this inheritance powder. This bitch would put it in her grandma's water. Her grandma would drink it, not thinking anything. Boom, die, and then get all the money. So in the 1800s, like, arsenic compounds, they became widely available. Like, anyone could get them. Um, they were known as like weed killers, fly trappers, rat poisons, etc. And they were just used constantly in domestic murders. Like this was the go-to poison. Um, and this poison ar- arsenic is known as like the most famous poison to use in murders. So uh, if you have followed any true crime past or any true oh, yeah. crime like ever, you've heard of arsenic. Like this is the poison. Like you want to kill someone, use arsenic. Like they can't taste it, they die. Me personally, I would use thallium because it's it doesn't happen for a couple days, so no one suspects it, and it appears as you like you know are dying from the flu. But the number one poison is arsenic, y'all. Damn. So, but anyways, number two is belladonna. That's crazy. So those are because belladonna is like you just like squeeze a few blueberries, bl- blue belladonnas in a fucking juice box, and the person's dead. But those are the five top poisons to use to kill someone so you're welcome or you're not welcome i don't know but just be careful if you drink drinks from like a stranger because they could put some motherfucking arsenic in it you don't know so those are the poisons (laughs) bye the end the end bye cool 
Um, yeah, I think I would use the tryptonum or whatever it's called. What'd you say? Strictonine. Strictonine. There we go. Yeah, I'd use that. Yeah, I would use thallium because it like. Or it, no, I would use thallium. No, that's what I meant. Thallium, thallium. That's the fifth one, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Couple first day one, delay. So. You can like escape. Oh yeah. And like still. You could have be a on a plane and like go to fucking I don't know, Bora yeah. Bora. I, yeah. I'd call you and I'd be like, we're going to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. I have my husband's bank information. He's dying in five days. Oh yeah. This is oh, the yeah. burner phone. Goodbye. Goodbye. And then we're yeah, rich. Yeah, this is a burner phone. <laughs> So those are the top five poisons. Yes. Okay. Well, let's go on to my supernatural segment. I'm super excited. I hope I'm not too drunk. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm now for a yours. bottle and a half into champagne. It's okay. <laughs> okay. And we're just 55 minutes into this. And oh we my just are getting to the fucking first. god. Well, we can easily shave off 10. Easily. Okay. So we're 45 minutes. 45 yeah. minutes into this, and we're still getting into our first. Oh yeah. Thing. Um. Okay. So, um, we mine is titled The Gene Harlow House. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. So located at 9860 or 9820, I couldn't get I couldn't get a consensus on that. 9860 Easton Drive in Beverly Hills. And built hey. in 1925, this Bavarian style home built for the average size family would over the years become a house of abuse, ghostly premonitions, and Death. <laughs> oh yes. Kay. Say it again. Death. So. Oh Gene Harlow. Uh. So so basically the house was built in 1925, but we don't care for the first five years. Okay. So Gene Harlow, a young actress and eventually actress and eventually sex sex symbol of the 1930s, was told by MGM Gold. to move to a nicer area, and so she rented this home in the early 1930s with her parents. Uh, she then married uh, Paul Byrne, an MGM executive, in the home's living room, um, in the home's living room, and continued to rent the house uh, with her parents. Sadly, her marriage to Paul Byrne had devastating effects. As on the second night after their honeymoon, Byrne beat her savagely in the home down the home bathroom downstairs and damaged her kidneys. Oh my God! Yeah, she told it her mother. Quick. Oh my God! We're like we are going. We are doing we're- this. We're like in it. We're like pussy. Oh yeah, right like now. like like yeah. We've already started getting crazy. So she told her mother of uh, what happened, which caused contention between uh you know uh Jean Harlow's parents and Paul, and so the parents moved out. Um, then only two months after marrying Jean Harlow on September fifth, Byrne was found dead from a gunshot wound to the head in their home while Jean was spending the night with her mother. Oh, fuck. Right? Like, like, yeah, we went from fucking zero to 11. Okay? So, yeah, Channa, I'm, I'm going to send you the picture of this guy dead <gasps> on the floor. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. I'm so excited. I know. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> right. wet with dread. I <laughs> It's actually I like a crazy. Yeah, it's actually <laughs> like a crazy picture, too. It's like pretty fucking intense. Again, Corey and I have talked about how we send each other the, the most <laughs> fucked up fi- videos and pictures we can find. I know. And it like makes me wet. I'm like, like yes! if I die in a horrific way, like please take a fucking picture of it and send it to literally everybody. Yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah! I'm so I'm like on Facebook waiting. I'm ready. Oh, I just oh see yeah, Simone it's coming. So cute. Oh, uh, Simone. Yeah, because she's still snuggling in the exact, literally the exact same position as when I texted. Okay, that should picture. be a pretty good image. That should actually be a pretty. It's like 400 by like 1600. It's like it's pretty good. Oh, I got it. Yes. Ooh, fun. Yeah, you can see him like in the back there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So that is the site that the police came onto. Basically, uh, I'll describe Ew. it to y'all a little bit. Byrne was found dead from a gunshot wound to the head. So Byrne is Jean Harlow's wife. Jean Harlow, again, is the fucking, like, you know, um, her actually, she became the first blonde bombshell. She actually coined that oh. phrase. She's the first blonde bombshell of Hollywood in the 30s. Um, Good for her. Yeah, fuck yeah, go her. So Byrne was found yeah, dead bitch. from a gunshot wound to the head in their home while Jean was spending the night with her mother. The coroner ruled How his convenient. death a suicide. However. It was a demon. Yeah, okay. He was found nude and lying on the floor, dead from a bullet wound. He had bled all over Jean's white bedroom, and his body was drenched in Harlow's favorite perfume. Like, literally, Ew. like, somebody had taken, emptied the bottle of her perfume onto his body. Ah, a suicide note yikes. was found in the bedroom. Later, one employee, Davis the gardener, stated that it was not Burns' handwriting. Also, Burns' secretary, Miss Harrison, said that she felt it was a murder. I feel like I'm literally reading, like, clue. <laughs> um, this is super fun. <laughs> yeah. There was also a female bathing suit and two wine glasses left with a blood spot at the edge of the swimming pool in the backyard. Oh, my God. Wait a minute. Yes. I know who it was. It was Miss Scarlet yes. with a gun in the patio. <laughs> in the bathroom. It's the bathroom. <laughs> In the bathroom. Um, Miss Scarlet, how dare you? So it appear I might fall asleep watching Clue tonight because I fucking love that fucking movie. It's such a fun movie. Um so it's it so good. Did you it's have so you seen that fun. meme? Have you seen that meme that goes around where it's like every gay man when drunk is one of the girls from one of the women from Clue? I haven't. That's <laughs> it's fun. So perfect. Um okay. So um uh, where was I? Okay. We're talking about Clue. Okay, yeah, okay. How the lipstick wine glasses, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so, crazy. So, yeah, we have the two wine glasses left um, with a blood spot at the edge of the swimming pool. So, it appeared that Byrne had entertained someone at the, at the, at the, like, at the house. Um, it was a demon. After Jean had gone to stay with her mother. Um, police, uh, the note that the police discovered re reads as follows. And this is like legit. You can literally look up pictures of, of this. It says, Fine. dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. And then as like a sort of PS footnote, he puts, you understand that last night was only a comedy. Like... <laughs> Okay, Whoa. so what happened is officially uh, the coroner wrote this off as a suicide, the police wrote this off as a suicide, and the yeah, public okay. for years accepted this as a suicide. However, the shit that I sort of gave you preemptively, and then now the actual stuff that I'm going to give you right now, sort of shines light on really what happened. So yeah, it's not a suicide. Yeah, I know it's this isn't this. I know this is a little bit more true crime right now, but it gets spooky. Okay, so, I'm so interested. I'm so into this. I know this is so fun. Like I was like texting Carl. I was like, "Fuck, Carl, you're gonna fucking love this. Like this is fucking perfect." And this actually wants me to make. I want to watch Hollywood like now, like right. Fucking okay, now. wait yeah. a minute. <laughs> you have like as a gay man, Corey. You have to watch. Hollywood. Oh, I will totally like, you, watch you that. Have yeah. To. Oh, yeah. As, as a as a gay man that loves film and mm -hmm. like loves Hollywood and like the progression of Hollywood, oh, and I'll know some of the people who actually show like the guy like I didn't actually even know that somebody is on it portraying Rock Hudson, but fuck yeah, yeah. No, like you, oh my like, god, you, you have to watch it. The entire time Jordan was like, "Is Corey watching this?" And I was like, "He probably is," because <laughs> yeah, Hollywood is exactly what what Hollywood could have been, and like 
the whole the only critique okay we'll go into it later okay 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 yeah. we can do it after in like our anyways how's your sex life okay yeah, yeah. okay go on so a 2009 biography of Byrne asserted that Byrne Paul Byrne this is the husband was in fact murdered by a former lover and the crime scene was then rearranged by MGM executives to make it appear that Byrne had killed himself what the fuck oh, yeah. That's so, very Hollywood. Yeah, no, oh my god, and this is real. Like, so, um, Louis B. Mayer, a co, the co-founder, one of the co-founders of MGM, literally told a group of of executives and producers that it would be covered as a suicide of impotence. Like, they would they would post it as like Paul Byrne was uh sad or embarrassed of his impotence as a man, and that he killed himself because of that way. And that's alluding to part of the uh, the ps note saying you understand that last night was a comedy so after Whoa. reviewing the evidence it was concluded that Byrne was murdered by his abandoned common life wa- common law wife dorothy millet who then committed suicide day later by drowning so this is probably the real thing that happened so he had a wife that was called co- uh, her name was dorothy millet she was uh in some accounts that i read she was pretty crazy like almost like legitly crazy not like derogatorily oh. misogynistically crazy she was legitimately yeah. crazy um who then committed suicide later by drowning as she jumped overboard from the delta king which i looked up is a is a famous steamboat that is still around today that you can like that has been like a steamboat hotel that you can go and be Ooh. at. Yeah. Is so that haunted? No, well, I mean, fucking she jumped from it and died, which is real. Oh um, so Dorothy fun. Miller, two days I mean, after fun. after this happened, she jumped overboard of the Delta King on her way from San Francisco to Sacramento and killed herself. Whoa. Yeah. So <laughs> Jean Harlow, the wife, the girl, the, the, yeah. the blonde bombshell, her official statement um, at the time without knowing all of that stuff that I just talked about in her official statement said to the police that she knew nothing about his suicide. However, it is alleged that shortly alleged I want to focus on is alleged that shortly after hearing of his death, Jean Harlow swallowed a bottle of sleeping pills um, as she blamed herself for his death. Harlow and her family left the house behind, but misfortune, uh, but misfortune did not as on May 29th in 1937. So just five years later, Harlow filmed a scene in which the character she was playing had a fever. So she's literally on set trying to play a character who is sick and she is sicker than she should be. Harlow was leaning against co-star Gable, uh, Clark Gable, uh, Gone with the Wind people. You know, it happened one night. Those are like, like, if you haven't seen those films, fuck you, go see those films. Uh, Clark Gable. And she literally leaned against him between scenes and said, I feel literally in quotes from Clark Gable said, I feel terrible get me back to my dressing room. So he literally carried her back to her dressing room. She is actually, she's eventually taken back to her house where her parents are. And then eventually hospitalized where she slipped into a coma and then died on June 7th of 1938 at the age of 27, 26. Whoa. Yeah. So literally May 29th, she is filming a scene with Clark Gable and on June 7th, eight days later, she is dying. She died. That's crazy. Yeah. So as I said earlier, people attested to the fact that when she was beat up by um, by Paul, um, that she got kidney damage. 
Um, and that's that. And then like, you know, and so she just eventually like over her years, she got sick for many different reasons. She got sick as a teen from scarlet fever and stuff like that. She was very sickly actually, just to, just to like note, um, Harlow's death certificate gave, gave the causes of her death as acute respiratory infection, acute nephritis, nephritis and uremia which is basically those last two just basically just like kidney problems okay so she died of acute respiratory infection and kidney problems okay so that is just like the intense misfortune that followed Jean harlow who was the first noteworthy person of this house and then also we have um paul who killed himself within the house now after ben's suicide a burn suicide sorry not ben paul burns suicide and harlow's uh death uh, soon after leaving the house, people began to think that Ben's suicide had jinxed the house, as it is also reported that with between the time that they that uh, that Jean Harlow left the house after the suicide and before the next story that I'm going to get to, two people also had died in the pool in this house. I tried to Ew. look up actual official statements of this and I could not find that, so that we'll just say that's alleged. But let's just. Take that as fact because it's more fucking fun. Okay. Yeah. Spooky <laughs> pool deaths. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So in 1963, famous hairstylist and founder of Sebring International, Jay Sebring, bought the house <gasps> and he and his girlfriend, Sharon Tate, moved in. Oh, Jenna. Jenna. Like, right. Okay. If y'all don't Good know, job. if y'all don't know the Manson stuff, like you. Theory? If you do right now, you're yelling like Chana is. But if you don't, you'll you'll know when Chana starts talking. This is fun. So remember the name Jay Sebring and remember the name Sharon Tate, of course. Like, oh, my Old God. Old highlight under, under, underline. Yeah. Here we so Sebring, Jay Sebring, was intrigued by the house's history, which was one of the reasons why he purchased it. Same. But he didn't same. believe in the curse. And so they moved in. Not same. I would always believe in the curse, but move in. I believe in the curse, but I would probably still move into this fucking house because it's beautiful. Yeah, because it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So while there, Sharon Tate claimed to see apparitions. And when asked about the house in interviews, these are actual quotes from a biography of Sharon Tate. She would say, at night in the area, people swear that they see and hear Paul Byrne, who's the guy that we talked about who killed himself. They would hear Paul Byrne's ghost and see him walking about. She also is noted saying, or quoted saying, it's a house where you get scared sometimes. Ooh. And that's like from 60, like interviews with her. Like that's not like I literally like got this from a biography. Um, Like I I, I read it. Um, Good job, Corey. I know. Isn't this this like literally? No, literally. I saw, I like looked it up, like I looked up craziest hauntings and this said it. And and then I saw the word Sharon Tate and I was like, what the fuck? Like, I'm doing this right now. Okay. Yeah, this Sorry. is fun. Sharon Tate and J.C. Bring would live in that house as they dated for three more years and even got en- engaged. However, in 1966, Sharon broke the engagement off for Roman Polanski, which if you've Ooh. seen, if you know this story or if you've seen uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you sort of know what's going on. Jay accepted this and considered Sharon and Roman his family and Jay and Sharon stayed very good friends, even until their deaths that that channel will get to. Oh, my God. I know. This right. OK, so this is the, this, this is, is the one so last good. little. This is like the one. It's not little, but the last thing that I'm getting to. OK, 
It is I'm widely wet. known ex- or accepted and accepted that on the one of the last nights that Sharon spent in this house, the Jean Harlow house, where all this happened that I was talking about, in 1966, while Jay was out of town, she was woken up by Paul Byrne and had a premonition. This was documented and again, this was documented and published by a reporter, Dick Kleiner, that I actually literally read the news report, okay, the column. Who reject? Who released? Sorry, not rejected. Who released an article covering it in both 1966 and then in 1969, just after the murders. So he released this. This what I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read a paraphrased, dramatic version of it. But I went to go see if it was really real, and this is real, guys. Like I'm not making this part up. This guy, Dick Kleiner, literally had an interview with. Uh, Sharon Tate in 1966 and released this column and then released it again in 1969 after the murders to be like, what the fuck? Okay. Uh, He does change some things between the 1966 and 1969 to make things more intense. And, but, but, you know, like just most of this is actually pretty factual. Okay. Which is fun. Okay. okay? Oh my God. So so I'm going to read verbatim a semi dramatization of what happened. Dramatization as in to make it more narrative rather than, uh, makeup stuff. It's, It's just putting it into a narrative. So, Oh my Lord. Trying to sleep one night to sleep in Jay's master bedroom. Uh, she Sharon Tate was overwhelmed with an uneasy feeling of a strong presence. Jumping at every noise, she lay on the bed with the lights on. Suddenly, an apparition of a creepy little man scuttled into the bedroom and began rummaging around for something. Putting on her robe, Sharon hurried out of the room. Uh, What happened next was especially uh, chilling in light of events to come. Sharon started down the stairs, but halfway down them, she froze in shock. Tied to the staircase posts at the bottom of the steps, she saw a figure. It was unclear if it was a man or a woman, but she could clearly see that the figure's throat had been cut. The apparition <gasps> then vanished. Sharon was very sh- shaken and went into the living room to pour herself a drink, but she couldn't find where Jay kept the alcohol. She felt an inexplicable Bitch. urge to press on a section of the bookcase, which opened to reveal a hidden bar. Oh my god. Without thinking, she tore away a piece of the wallpaper at the base of the bar as she nervously, nervously poured herself a drink. The next morning, she was convinced the whole episode had been a terrible nightmare until she saw the wallpaper that had been torn away from the bar. She had indeed seen Paul Byrne at that time and had unknowingly unknowingly seen a vision of her fate. So, it is that is real that this guy in 1966, Sharon Tate literally tells him, hey, I saw quote like specifically like 100% quoting her a creepy little man running around her bedroom and then she it report like in the report Derek Kleiner says that she went downstairs and down the stairs she saw somebody tied up with their throat slit can I can I add to this go yeah go spookiness yeah she referred to Charles Manson in quotes as creepy little man <gasps> like three years later yeah like i'm not i'm not making this up like, y'all she- you can go if you you can search if you search Derek kleiner or sorry was it dick it's dick kleiner if you search dick kleiner sharon tate uh column you can see the column like you can read it she said in 1966 <laughs> and in 1969 he releases this in 1969 he does release it with a couple additions that are more specific to the murders, which, 
you know, could discredit the spookiness of all of this. But to me, it just makes it a little bit more, you know, sensational. But it's also released in 1966. Like, holy fuck. (laughs) That's... Like, literally, she literally refers to Charles Manson, which I'll get to, like, yeah. six of my notes, yeah. as a creepy little man. So, like, what? <laughs> like, that's, yeah. that's so crazy. Yeah. It, isn't, that, isn't that fucking ridiculous? Okay, so that is my connection. We're moving on with the with the specific to Gene, to the Gene Harlow house. So that, so in, yeah, so that is the premonition wow. that Sharon Tate has and that she, she said she told dick kleiner that was re that was released in an article in 1966 and then again in 1969 she she wow. had a premonition of her death wow while she that, was dating the same guy who hangs out who with roman there. polanski who also dies yeah which channel yeah. will get to who's also wow, murdered Corey, i literally cannot believe this is it, this is real I, right i was like what the I fuck i had no idea i had no idea <laughs> that same i murders. had no idea this was a thing so as I said, the 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 document that was ported by Dick Kleiner in the night in 1966 and then later in 1969, basically, uh, Channel might get into it a little bit, but in 1966, Sharon breaks off the engagement, as I said, and and basically goes and lives with Roman Polanski. Okay. I do not get into that. I do not get into any backstory. Okay. So, uh, so Jay, who she is going to mention. Um, yes, I will. He is basically. They were engaged. I said this earlier, but just to reiterate. They were engaged to be wed, Jay and uh, Sharon Tate. But then she he meets Roman her. Polanski, um, and they break it off. And then Sharon goes and lives with Roman uh, Polanski by the end of 1966. But Jay is still friends with them. He's a nice, chill dude, um, hippie dude. So they go, and he's like, fine. Like, y'all are my family now. I love y'all. That sucks that you're not my li- wife, but I fucking love you. So I'm just going to be a nice person, I guess. And they stay friends, and then Channa will pick that up a little bit later. And then um, they die together. <laughs> yay. Yay. So you can actually actually go on YouTube and watch footage of Jay and Sharon hanging out in the pool of the backyard of the Gene Harlow house. You can go to yeah, YouTube and watch them chilling and, like, just smoking weed. Like, literally. He loves her. He loves her so much. Yeah. Like it's it's like he he's he's just in love with her. Chenna, this is so fun because I had no idea this was a thing until f- like twelve hours ago. I had no idea this was a thing until twenty minutes ago. Right? I'm shook. Okay. This makes me rethink my whole like every way I'm gonna say the murder. Right? I'm, like, I'm gonna say this different now. Um. So <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on from the whole Sharon Tate murders and everything. So um, this happens in 1966. The murders happened in 1969. Um, on the day before, uh, and then people in the 1970s, the early 1970s, somebody buys the house, uh, the Gene Harlow house. On the day before the family moved into the home, um, uh, the wife went upstairs. I don't, I could, tried to find the name of the family. I couldn't. I don't know if so this is all made up. I don't know. I really tried to see if this was real, but I couldn't figure it out. Her dogs followed her, uh, the wife. We're just going to call her Mrs. H. Okay. Um, her, her dogs followed her. Up the stairs, growling and barking at something in the upstairs no. bedrooms. That's an instant Absolutely fucking no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. If my husband <laughs> no. fucking buys a house without telling me, and I take my dog, and it won't enter the house, I'll be like, "You fucked up." Yeah, <laughs> bye. Like, We're getting a divorce, and also this yeah. house is haunted. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, in the hallway right outside of the master bedroom, Mrs. H felt an unseen presence and heard somebody softly whisper in her ear, please help me. Um, oh my God. On the first no. night in their home, the H's were lying in bed when some unseen heavy object struck their bed three times. Miss H addressed three? the, un- yeah, yeah, fuck that. Uh, Miss H addressed the unseen presence saying, you're welcome. How do you do? We've got to get some no! sleep and we're very tired and we need to get some sleep. So please let us be. I know that was a wow, little bit repetitive, is, but that's what the quote was. She is way stronger than I oh, am. I know, I'd be right? like, what the fuck? I'm like, you're a fucking, fucking demon. Bitch, fuck off. You're a <laughs> fucking demon. Um, here's some other happenings before I get to the main like little story about them. Uh, the lights in the kitchen would go off and brief off and on by themselves. Uh, while walking through the living room, Mrs. H saw strange formless, uh, a strange uh, formless light. And an outline of a form that floated above her near the ceiling. In the corner of the living room near the mailbox. Oh, what the fuck that is. Mrs. H and her aunt had heard the heavy heart-breaking sobs of a woman that is believed to be Jean Harlow herself when she heard about the death or the quote-unquote suicide death of her husband. When they heard this, the hairs on their arms stood up and they felt terribly sad. Um, cold spots can be felt in the kitchen, the downstairs area and the upstairs bedrooms. Unexplained wind drafts have been felt throughout the house, especially in the kitchen and the upstairs bedrooms. The strong smell of a woman's perfume can be smelled in the children's bedroom upstairs. Sometimes a weird, uneasy feeling can overcome a person in the downstairs bathroom. That is, that is, um, alleged where she took the pills and tried to kill herself after hearing about his, her you know, Paul's death. I think his name is Paul. Oh. I can't think of it right oh. now. Sorry, I'm a little drunk. Is it Paul? Paul Byrne. I yeah, Paul, Paul Byrne. Yeah. yeah. The MGM exec um, who shot yeah, himself. Yeah, the, 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 Like the OG dude that killed himself. Yeah. Um, he And so again, he's the one that like, because he killed himself in that house ever since the 30s, people have been like, that house is cursed. Oh. And then again, he is also the apparition that is believed to be the one that woke up Sharon Tate that led to her premonition of her death of her death and then we're going which connects to the charles manson murders what the fuck (laughs) this is like like we could not have planned this better we didn't plan it literally jenna when i read that i was like god you exist i'm i'm mormon i'm not gay anymore i guess george i'm george We have a very unhappy Mormon family. Yeah, goddamn. Both of us are, are resenting the fuck out of each other. It's right. <laughs> um, the strong smell of a woman's perfume can be smelled in the children's bathroom down upstairs. I said that. Um, a light knocking at the front door can be heard. A light knocking. A light knocking, as an adjective, a light knocking at the front door can be heard, but no one is ever there. Um, then the main Ew. thing about this house when the H's were living there is that both of them were warned in a dream of a faulty, dangerous wall light in the upstairs bathroom. Both saw a clear vision in their dreams of the bathtub full of water and a hand from the bathtub switches on the light that receives a terrible shock and then withers and dies. Oh my God. So literally after the premonition happened with Sharon Tate, these people that move into the Jean Harlow house have a premonition of... The bathtub full of water and then a hand going up and touching the light and being electrocuted to death, basically. 
Um, both of the people, both the uh, husband and wife of this family woke up, tell each other about it. And they're like, what the fuck? Let's get this checked out. So they get an electrician who goes and was horrified that such an outdated, dangerous light switch was still in the bathroom that he said could easily electrocute you if you were wet and touched and flipped the switch. So he immediately changed it. So again, we have another premonition Premonition. of people's deaths and they answered to it and it saved them. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Corey, (laughs) this is such a good segment. I'm so impressed. I know, right? What a good one. Fuck. So yeah. This is one of your best. Yeah. This is one of your best. Oh my God. I loved, I loved this so much. So that is the Gene Harlow house. Um, I tried to look for any additional shit of what was going on since the 70s. Nothing has really been reported. You can go on Zillow and stuff and look at this house. It's super beautiful, super updated. Oh, my God. I'm so going to. (laughs) Right? It's a beautiful house. It's like a Bavarian, like, beautiful. Oh, my God. It looks like a little fairy tale house with a pool in the back in the Hollywood Hills. Like, I want to live in this fucking house. Like, it's so, it looks so great. Um, Maybe we should live in this Hollywood. Let's put right? all our money together and let's. let's oh my god! Right. Like I want to go take a picture in front of this house. It looks. We so should move to Los Angeles together and just <laughs> right? be like live in the no. in the Hollywood Hills. Do we have? Oh my god! They, they literally live in Beverly Hills. <laughs> this is literally Jordan's in Beverly. Jordan's gonna walk in and be like, no. <laughs> you know, like my privileged ass has like grown up around the Beverly Hills so I'm like whatever in my head but like I know that's a big deal it is a big deal but you're like whatever I know I was like my whole time entire childhood was like based around this area Uh, when we were driving a car uh, when I was when I went to go visit Carl in February and we went to go to like his friends uh, Oscar's Oscar party Oscar party house in the hills he's just driving through it like it's like He's going to visit his friend, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just, like, All looking right. at every house we pass. I'm like, holy shit, this is real. <laughs> that is called, like, growing up around L.A. I know, and not- you, you would probably be like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like, where? when are we getting to my mom's hairdresser's place? <laughs> I know, it was so funny. <laughs> so funny. But, yeah, that is the um, Gene Barlow house. Or Gene, Good. sorry, the Gene Barlow house. Good Harlow segment, house. Corey. Sorry, I'm fucking Ten out of drunk. ten right good job 10 out of 10 would try again all right yeah all right we're gonna talk about heart um fuck me i (laughs) i have 10 i have 11 pages of notes 11 (laughs) we're gonna talk about part part four (laughs) of charles out of five i originally thought it was gonna be three parts but here we are part four yes out of five here we go. So this is like the Charles Manson episode. Um, now, to really understand what the fuck has been going on over the past two years, go listen to part one through three. Like, for reals, just pause right now and go listen to our last episodes. Because what I'm going to discuss have time. right now it's will not have, like, the gravity that I need that I needed the to gravitas. have. The um, gravitas. Unless you listen to part one through three. Because I do a damn good job at Charles Manson. Yeah, you so do. So go listen to one through three. And then come back to right now. This is part four. Yes. So, so far we have talked about Charles Manson's backstory. We have talked about the birth and rise of the Manson family. And we have talked about them at Spawn Ranch. We left off at the fall of 1968, which is, you know, just a year after Manson got out of prison. Um, Now, fall of 68 is when the Manson family's acid trips started taking a dark turn. 
And this is when Charlie's teachings and philosophies and ideologies started to change. So from free love and fighting the system, it became a race war. And things started at this point escalating very quickly for the family. So let's get into this. Are y'all ready? Yes. All right. That's good because I I don't know if I'm ready. (laughs) I've researched (laughs) this for weeks now. I have like a solid probably 12 to 16 hours plus of this. and I Jenna has a master's in this. I have a master's in Charles Manson and I'm still like, what? About half the shit. (laughs) So in December of 1968, Charlie Manson heard the Beatles' White Album um, for the very first time. It was released like November something of 1968 and he heard it in in December. He went to like an L.A. party. Charlie listened to the album over and over and over again and over again and just became completely obsessed he felt like the beatles were trying were talking to him and sending him a message about something huge that was about to happen and that was a race war oh my god now all of his philosoph- all of his philosophies that he spoke about during the past two- one to two years um they quickly turned from fun, like, yay, we're hippies, we're having sex and doing drugs, this is so fun, like, fuck the system, yeah, woohoo, um, and then they, and, you know, like, a casual splash of Jesus, and then they turned quickly into a race war, and oh that God. was because of Charlie's interpretation of the White Album, and his interpretation of the album is, like, the reason why the family went from a hippie cult into a destructive and you could even argue like a doomsday yeah or at least a doomsday-esque cult oh i need to zoom into my notes because i'm blind as fuck yes okay now on new year's eve he told so this is new year's eve like 1968 1969 he told the family about the race war which he referred to as helter skelter so this is like the summary of the race war because this Exactly. So this could, my whole summary could be an entire episode, but like, I don't want Charlie Manson to be seven parts. So here we are. (laughs) So the the summary of the race war um, is that basically black people would eventually rise up and start a war against white people. Meanwhile, while that Holocaust-esque style war was happening, um, Charlie and the family would be hiding in a secret underground city um, under their Death Valley ranch. Wow. Um, and now after black people killed off every single non-black person, um, the black people would realize that they were incapable of running the world because, you know, only Whoa. white people can Whoa. rule the world. I roll hardcore right there. Yeah. So the family would then emerge from their secret underground city and they would rule the world. And they would create a new world that would fit all of Charlie's ideologies and philosophies so black people would be so grateful to the family specifically modern day jesus aka charlie which we have known from my past episodes that charlie to the family is the resurrection of jesus christ so black people fight against white people charlie and the fam would hide eventually after you know years or decades have passed charlie and the fam would would emerge from their underground city Look at the black people who clearly couldn't run a world because they're black. Oh, my God. Racism. 
But anyways, the black people would be so grateful to Charlie and the family that they'd be like, oh my God, you run the world. You take control. We'll follow anything you do. Jesus. Because we're... So yeah, so there's like a lot, there's obviously a lot of racism involved here with Charlie versus um, people of color. Um, anyways, how's your sex life? Now, um, yeah. to prepare for this race war that Charlie was now prophesizing, um, what they would do is they would let, like their whole goal was to let black people know that it, that this was coming. So to do that, like the family, so Charlie said, like, yo, Manson fam, we have to release an album with subtle messages, just like the Beatles white album. And this is going to one, let white people, white teenagers in San Francisco know to join the family. But also it's, it's, it's going to let black people know that they have to start preparing for a race war. What the fuck? Now, I want to pause right here because I went on like a very long tangent to to Jordan about this. What I find so interesting, and I'm very junk right now, so I'm just going to like let you know that. But what I find (laughs) so interesting or fascinating about specifically Charles Manson and the Manson family is the shift from, you know, fun, hippie cult shit to, to batshit wild cult happened in the matter of weeks like the album was released just because of an album six- so that so let me just like timeline this for y'all charlie was let out of jail in 67 um the album was released in november of like 68 and so by by new year's eve of 68 he like already told the family about his new prophecy so in the matter of weeks from when the album was released was released to when Charlie talked about this, his entire like philosophy and ideology changed. Oh my god. So I just want to point out, because this is like really interesting to me, and this is our podcast, so I get to talk about whatever is interesting to me, that <laughs> I at this point have researched a fuckload of cults, obviously, if you listen to this. And from based off of my research, it takes it usually takes a cult leader years and years and years of slow programming you can even argue brainwashing um of their followers to get them to to get them to the point where they blindly follow their leaders psycho and escalated beliefs the classic example is jonestown so like jonestown happened over like a decade pretty much right or like many many years it's not like the cult went from a super happy chill cult to a suicidal cult in day. No, oh, yeah, like, yeah. That took years and years of Jim Jones slowly manipulating and brainwashing his followers into believing that, yeah, the world is against us. And you know what? If they fully turn against us, we might have to kill ourselves one day. So, like, that whole ideology and, like, philosophy behind Jim Jones and the People's Temple took years. And that's not just specific for that cult like if you look at all cults it spans over many many years of the leaders slowly manipulating their cults but charles manson however had his cult members so badly fucked up from drugs he stripped them from their identities he stripped them from their personal beliefs for the from their personal beliefs and he manipulated them to the point that he literally switched from make love not war Two, we have to make use. We have to make music to convince black people to start a race war so we can rule the world in a matter of weeks. Like this did not take years. This took like a second for him to switch all of his 
philosophies into a polar opposite philosophy. And his philosophers were so, so brainwashed and drugged out at this point that they just went along with it. So if anything in the past three parts have sh like, if you haven't really connected to anything in the past three parts, like this part should connect you because in the, because Charles Manson manipulated his followers to the point where that he could switch ideologies so fast wow. that his followers would just believe it and they would just go with it. They're like, sure, they were yeah, so cool. fucked up. And like that is unbelievable to me, y'all. Like that should show you yeah. how incredibly manipulative Char Charles Manson is and what he was capable of doing. Because in such a short amount of time, in less than two years, he was able to take normal teenagers into murderers and that normally would take a a average cult leader you know five ten fifteen years plus so charles manson is a goddamn monster and if you want to disagree with me i will fight you to my death because he's a monster and his followers are have you um but i know crazy. you've seen oh sorry go go, go. keep going i'm just saying it's like it's crazy to think of how fast this is because like you can talk about cults as much as you want but usually when you talk about a cult, you're talking about over the span of many, many years. But Charles Manson's over the span of two years. <laughs> that is it. That's it. Two years. It went from getting out that of jail. That is crazy. It doesn't seem like that. And then murdering Sharon Tate. Like, fuck y'all. That's insane. It's That's insane. insane. Or well, getting not even murdering Sharon Tate, but getting people to do that. Uh, yeah manipulating people to do it to for you to do it for like, you yeah and that's a whole next level is like convincing people that you're so much like Jesus Christ that they're going to that they're going to kill for you Jesus fuck Charles Manson yeah so Charlie he announced the race war and his followers listened they listened to the white album because he was like yo i just listened to this crazy beatles album this is something you need to listen to now note on this before i continue this is obviously not their first time hearing the beatles um if you're unfamiliar with the 60s at all you should know that the beatles are a main factor in the 60s um america like any country you look at in the 60s the beatles are a thing like yeah. you listen to the beatles and they directly influence the 60s um, Charlie Manson, like this entire time with him preaching to these followers, like the Beatles were always involved. It's not like they only became involved at this point. They were a big factor. It's just the Beatles, y'all. Like, of yeah. course, they're a big factor. It's the fucking Beatles. Like Beatles. They're without... they're the fucking Beatles for a reason. Yeah. This is my personal note. And I'm right. And I will fight you on this forever. <laughs> if the Beatles did not exist. Music today would not be the same. That's just what no it is. agreed. Like the Beatles yeah, 100% influenced the history of music. And well, so the history of history. <laughs> yeah, and obviously Charles Manson used that to his advantage because he knew how to manipulate people, and he knew how to connect to people. And the Beatles is a, is a main way to connect with the Flower Power movement, and so he always used the Beatles. So when they released the White Album. And he, he was already so fucked up from drugs and he started hearing all these subtle messages. He could just use the Beatles because it was already a familiar source and he's able to further manipulate the family. So he started showing the family specific Beatles songs and like specific subtle messages. And he also started comparing a lot of the songs on the album to Revolution, Revelations 9, which I'll get to in a bit. Okay. 
now we're gonna talk to we're gonna talk about like some specific songs um about like lyrics from specific songs and how he translated them because it's really fascinating to me because i've listened to the beatles my whole life um so get ready if you're like don't care about the beatles fast forward but this is like crucial to understand like the charles manson and how he thought about this no yeah get into it the the song i will there is a lyric that says and that and when at last i find you your song will fill the air sing out loud so i can hear you make it easy to be near you so charles manson interpreted this this specific lyric as the beatles are looking for jesus christ which is Manson, which we know from part two or three that I discussed that Charles Manson is the reincarnated version of Jesus. Um, And he took this specific lyric from I Will as the Beatles wanted him to make his own album to spread the news that he was the resurrected Jesus. So then we get to the song (laughs) Honey Pie. Jesus. So... In the song Honey Pie, there's a few lyrics that Manson goes handbone over. The first is, oh, honey pie, my position is tragic. Come and show me the magic of your Hollywood song. Oof. So the meaning is the Beatles know that Jesus Christ has returned to Earth and is in Los Angeles. And oh my God. that was obviously Manson because he was located in L.A. They already knew knew him as the resurrected, resurrected Jesus. So he had to create his own song. That is his album that will set off Helter Skelter, which plays into the song I Will. So a lot of this kind of piggybacks off of each other because they're all about finding Jesus and like releasing shit. The, um, the next lyric is, oh, honey pot, you're driving me frantic. Still across the Atlantic to where you belong. So the meaning is that the Beatles want Jesus Christ to come to England. So meaning that they want Manson to come to England to work with them on how to build this oh my God. or Helter Skelter. What a um, what now, a self-centered bitch. <laughs> so fun fact, like Manson and some of the Manson girls tried contacting the Beatles. Like they sent dozens of telegrams to the Beatles being like, come to Spawn Ranch, come to Death Valley, which we'll get to in a second. Like, come to us. Like, Charles Manson's is the modern-day Jesus. Like, you're asking for him. We have him. But the Beatles, because they're the Beatles, and they get, you know, hundreds of thousands of telegrams a day, they never read the telegrams from the Manson families. Now, the last lyric for Honey Pie that they really interpreted is, uh, I'm in love, but I'm lazy. Now, the meaning was that the Beatles loved Jesus Christ, but, but were too lazy to go looking for him. So Manson needed to work for them. And that played into Manson trying to contact the Beatles and also Manson um, releasing his album um, for Helter Helter Skelter. Now the next song off of the album. Now pause real quick. If you have not once in your life listened to the White Album by the Beatles. Oh my God. You need to take a second (laughs) and go listen to it. Because without that album, (laughs) please stop. you listen to today would not exist. Please please stop consuming any media and go listen to that. (laughs) Because you're welcome. Yeah, like I'm not that learned in music. Like I'm not, but I have listened to that album. (laughs) Please go. But you know the significance of the White Album. Yeah, please go listen to that. (laughs) Ugh, that I, okay, like fun fact i'm like the biggest beatles nerd on earth yeah when i was in high school 
three out of my four walls from floor to ceiling were covered in Beatles memorabilia. Oh my god. Um, I, I love the Beatles. Like they have a very intense emotional impact. So like anytime we talk about the Beatles, I'm like yes. I'm like wet <laughs> for the Beatles. <laughs> Anyways. Yes. Okay, n- next song on this album is "Sexy Sadie." So the significance of this is that Manson actually re like referred to Susan Atkins, who is a key player in like the Manson murders, who I've talked about in the last episode. Uh, he referred to her one of her many nicknames was Sadie. Sorry, Sadie May Glutz, and this was you know months and months and months before the release of the song "Sexy Sadie." So as soon as the song "Sexy Sadie" came out. They all looked at Susan Atkins, a.k.a. Sadie Mae Glutz, and they're like, holy shit, this song's about you. Like, <sighs> this solidifies our connection that Manson is con- is connected to the Beatles because he called someone Sadie, and now they release a song about Sadie. And Tex Watson even wow. wrote in his own autobiography that the words of Sexy Sadie fits perfectly into who, su- into who Sadie Atkins is because specifically there's a lyric that says um, – like, something about her being free and, like, sexually free and, like, wild and stuff. And that all represented Sadie Atkins perfectly. And so he said um, that it truly made us believe the Beatles were singing directly to us. Because not only at this point do we believe that they were referring to Manson as Jesus, but now suddenly they had a whole song dedicated to Sadie Atkins or to Susie Atkins. So they were, like, convinced. They're like, oh, shit, we've always referred to Sa- to Susie as Sexy Sadie. And now they have a whole song about Sexy Sadie. The Beatles are obviously singing to us. Therefore, we should murder people. Oh, my God. Anyways, next song is Rocky Raccoon. So, so the significance of this song specifically is that uh, is the key word coon, which, like, the Beatles say in the song. And coon is a vulgar term for a black man. And so they... So they heard Rocky Raccoon, and that's when they started. That's when Manson started putting together. Okay, this is about black people versus white people, and oh. specifically the lyric that said "Gideon checked out," which is fun fact, probably the only Beatles reference that directly references a Bible character is this line. Um, but it says Gideon checked out and left no doubt to help Rocky Raccoon's revival. So that's like a fun fact. But anyways. So Rocky's revival, um, it means coming back to life. And so Manson interpreted this as the black man is going to come into power again. And then the next song, Happiness is a Warm Gun, is pretty obvious to what Manson Oh, I love would, that song. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's one of the most like, beautiful songs ever written geez. of all time. Literally one of the most beautiful songs. Yeah, agreed. Uh, but the significance of the song is that the Beatles were telling black people to get guns and fight whites because happiness is true freedom. It's a warm gun. And so if you as a black person killed a white person, this is when you would experience happiness. Now, the next song is on my top five Beatles songs is Blackbird. Um, now, the lyrics specifically, Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life you were only waiting for this moment to arise you know like the yes like this is one of like the beatles songs oh my yeah you you know you know those lyrics yeah yeah and this was written but for like inspired by a civil war woman but anyways uh manson took this as like the black man was going to arise and overthrow the white man and the 
Beatles were using this song to program black people to rise. And this is when Charles Manson started using the word rise, which you would later see in the La Bianca murders. They would write rise in the La Bianca's blood on the wall. So this is the song that started the word rise for Manson. Um, then you have the song Helter Skelter. Now, specifically mm. the lyric, when I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide where I stop and I turn and I go for a ride. So the significance is a reference to the family's emergence from the bottomless pit, which is that like underground Death Valley secret city that I mentioned. Um, this is where like the group will emerge um, and take complete control of black people. This is uh, when they escape like the violence and the chaos of Helter Skelter. Um, the next lyric is the most obvious Helter Skelter lyric, um, which is, look out, Helter Skelter, she's coming down fast. Yes, she is. The meaning is the um, upcoming explosion of race-based violence is imminent. So it's saying, Helter Skelter, there's race war. It's coming fast. She's coming right fucking now. Get ready. Now, Manson also... Now, pause real quick. If you've ever listened to, to Helter Skelter, you would take note that it's a very chaotic song compared to other Beatles song. Oh, um, yeah. It's, it's not as organized. It's chaotic. You feel uneasy while you listen to this. So Manson took that and he was like, you know what? Like the reason the song is so chaotic and so uneasy is because it perfectly encapsulates like what the race war is because it's so chaotic and it's so e uneasy and the black people winning, like they still don't know how to run a world because they're black, which is, you know, a hundred percent racism. But anyways, so Helter Skelter like imperf like perfectly encapsulates encapsulates um, Charlie Manson's feelings about the race war, saying it's chaotic, and it's going to be chaotic because black people don't know how to run a world. So racist, pretty Oof. much. Ooh, okay. That's where we're at. It's super racist, but it's <laughs> fine. Uh, it's yeah. not fine. Next not song fine. is is Piggies, which you can already uh, you know guess what piggies is about but specifically the lyric um what they needs is a damn good whacking and that's referring to the piggies so the significance of that lyric or the meaning is that p black people are going to be giving the piggies which is you know the police and the establishment and society and white people and everybody who said no to them a damned good whacking so it's saying like take back what's yours like get it get your weapons fight them back fuck the piggies and then the last two songs we're going to talk about, the first one is Revolution One, which every person has probably heard because it goes, you say you want a revolution, well, you know. Oh, that goddamn song. You want to change the world. Goddamn. Best song ever. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's like the best banger song ever. Mm -hmm. Anyways, at the end of like that like lyric segment that I, I mentioned, uh, John Lennon says, but when you want to talk about destruction, don't you know that you can, you count, can count me, me out? out? And then, in, and then he says, "In." You know However, <laughs> the, the singing when he says "in" after the word "out," that does not appear in the official lyrics that were presented and printed that that went oh. along the sheet that was that was released with the album. Um. So, like Manson took this as, "Holy shit! 
Like, the Beatles are saying that they condone a violent revolution, but because they're the Beatles, because they're so high up and they're almost gods to us at this <sighs> point, like, they can't specifically say that they're in and that they condone a violent revolution. So that's why John Lennon says in, even though the printed lyrics isn't safe. Wow. So, like, this was, like, the Damn. moment where he was, like, he's, like, yo, like, I interpreted the rest of the album as a specific way, but Revolution 1 is, like, really letting me know that the Beatles not only has been speaking directly to me and oh. talking about a race war, but now is talking about a violent um, revolution to go with this race war. Oh, my God. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Holy shit. And then the, the <laughs> Everyone's other, like, yeah. yes. We're like, oh shit, no. <laughs> then the other lyric of Revolution 1, which is one of like the greatest songs ever created, but whatever. Mm. Um, there is a lyric that says, you say you got a real solution. Well, you know, we'd all, we'd all, sorry, I'm so drunk. We'd all love to see the plan. So how Charles Manson interpreted this as was the Beatles wanted Manson to, to tell them to how to escape from the horrors of Helter Skelter. So they wanted a solution and that they were ready for violence, but they wanted Manson to create his album to tell them what to do. And it's the songs that will be the plan whose subtle messages will be aimed at the various parts of society that will be involved in Helter Skelter. So continuing on with all the other interpretations of the song, basically what Revolution 1 was saying the Beatles were down for a violent revolution and they wanted Manson to lead it. And they wanted Manson to explain how to by releasing an album, which also plays perfectly into the theory that Manson just wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> Anyways, Jeez. Revolution 9, which is also one of the most famous Beatles songs. This is like an eight minute, nine minute song of just noise and like the occasional words. Now, this is like where people think the white album was the least successful but this is where manson thinks it was the most successful and this is where he thought that it spoke to him the most oh interesting um, okay and, and this is this is the song that he deemed most significant um in quotes it was the beatles way of telling um, what was going to happen it was their way of making a prophecy and it directly paralleled the bible's revelation 9 now if you think about it revolution 9 revelation nine you get it it's yeah. like you know there's one letter difference now the significance of the song if you haven't listened to the song go listen to it like go you know go join. go lose yourself yeah go listen to it it's a very important part of music history but anyways music manson hears a machine gun fire oinking of pigs the word rise other people speaking and whatnot and so he interpreted this as like this is the story of how the helter skelter race war is going to start this explains how it's going to climax it's, it explains how it's going to end all the good stuff so like revolution nine kind of uh includes every single aspect of charles manson's newfound beliefs go listen to revolution nine now uh revolution nine like i said go is directly paralleled with paralleled with Revolu revelation nine uh, now, Revelations 9 of the Bible goes over the end of the world. Um, Charlie interprets Revelations 9's, you know, to fit perfectly into Helter Skelter. Um, but this discussing Charlie's interpretations of Revelations 9 would take another 40 minutes or so. Um, so I decided not to go into it. <laughs> um, so that's going to be an Instagram mini-sode because it's literally like another six pages of notes. You're like, hey. <laughs> 
And also, I did not want to read the Bible because I get oh, very triggered. Please no. But <laughs> pretty much like Revelations 9 is about the apocalypse and about like hell opening up and uh, locusts with like a long hair emerging, which, you know, represents Charlie. And the yeah. They're, yeah. There's just like a ton of like imagery and like metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And so that was like Charlie's exact kink. Um, the only interesting thing like I really have to mention with Revelations 9 is Revelations 9 is really the only significant part of the Bible that Charlie directly mentions during his, during his prophecies. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Normally, he just talks about, you know, fuck the system, let's have sex, let's do drugs, you know, what we all want to hear. But um, Revelations 9 is really the only part where he connects with the Bible, and that is because of the Beatles album, the White Album, and specifically Revolution 9, which can be interpreted as a... A whole song based off of Revelations 9. So here we are. Anyways, um, I'm probably going to go through Revelations 9 and, tr- and Charlie's interpretation during a mini-sode, which we talked about. We'll do on Instagram. But it's a lot. And it's like, and I just do not want to read the Bible right now. So anyways, <laughs> let's continue on. So now that you understand like how Charlie was making his whole family listen to the Beatles and interpret the Beatles, you can understand why they started preparing for Helter Skelter. So over the next few months, they started collecting weapons. They started stocking up with supplies. They started fixing up old cars, oh, sorry, old cars, old dune buggies. They tried getting money and they started recording their album. And of course, all throughout all of this, doing acid, shrooms, and belladonna. Wow. Did you, do you know how often he like, he did these like sermons about the white album. I mean like constantly. Yeah. Like that's crazy. Go. Yeah. You're just sitting there having sermons about an album. That's crazy. And the whole thing is like as someone who like, I love the Beatles more than life itself, obviously, which you know from yeah. this episode, like if someone offered me acid and was like, let's just talk about the, Eagles, the <laughs> you're Beatles like, for okay. Eight hours, I'd be so into it. <laughs> and it's not like the Beatles were a new introduction. Like they've, they've, all listen to the Beatles throughout this entire Yeah, they've been established for a decade, Manson, right? Yeah. Yeah, like like it was, you know, the Beatles were the 60s. That's just what it was. Yeah. Like, argue with me as much as you want. It was the Beatles. So, like, Manson talking about the White Album wasn't that crazy. And so him, like, then pinning, like, a racial war to the Beatles at this point where his members were so brainwashed and so disillusioned at the world, like, it's not that surprising to to realize that his members were so into like a race war and shit. (laughs) Damn. It's crazy. So almost four months after the announcement of Helter Skelter. So this is March 23rd, one day after Corey's birthday. Yay. 1969. Oh, Solid year. (laughs) Manson went to um, 150 like cello, cello drive and he was looking for the music producer that would ha- that helped steal his music, um, Terry Melcher. Now, Terry Melcher, if you don't know who I'm talking about, like y'all go listen to my last like three parts because he is a he is very important in this whole story. But anyways, Charlie went to Terry Melcher because he wanted Terry to produce his Helter Skelter Race War album. So he went to the house because he's partied there a few times. He knew Dennis Wilson, blah, blah, blah. He rolled up to the house. But at that time, Richard Altobelli, he owned the property and he was living in the guest house. 
1969, um, he was actually renting out the main house to Rowan Polanski and Sharon Tate. Damn. Manson, um, he knew the property owner, Richard, um, from like the Dennis Wilson partying days. But he didn't know that Terry Melcher you know, didn't live there anymore. He thought he still did. So he had no idea that Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate still lived there. So Manson rolled up looking for Terry Melcher, wanting him to produce this um, new, like, race war album. Um, so he... Hold on, I lost my place. Okay, so he rolled into the house, and he was met by um, Shiro Katami. I am... Um, First of all, I'm so sorry. I'm going to butcher a lot of these ma- these names. Sorry. I'm doing my best. So, Shiro Katami was a photographer who was there to take pictures of Sharon Tate um, before she left for Rome the very next day. So, he was there. He was taking pics of her. And he noticed this, like, creepy little dude rolling up to the house. So, uh. he looked out the window and he was like, what the fuck is this weird-ass dude doing to this house? And this is Sharon Tate's house. Like, she was an it girl, y'all. She was not unknown. This is the... Sharon Tate. So this creepy little man rolling up to the house obviously would cause alarm. Yeah. So he like went out to the front porch. He went out to the front porch and he confronted Charles Manson. And he was like, yo, like, what the fuck are you doing here? And Charles, he was like, hey, I'm looking for Terry Melcher. Like, I need to talk to him about a music deal. And Hatami, he was like, hey, like, like, uh, Terry Melcher doesn't live here anymore, but you can go ahead and ask, um, Richard Altabelli, and he would probably tell you where he is. Um, instead, like Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate live here, just to let you know. So Charles Manson was like, okay, like, I get it. Terry Melcher doesn't live here anymore. So he went to the guest house in the backyard. He met up with Richard Altabelli, but right before he did this, right before he walked away, Sharon Tate actually walked up to the porch. Oh my God. And she looked at Charles Manson and she, like, asked Hatami, like, who the fuck this guy was. And Tommy was like, oh, it's just a guy looking for Terry Melcher. And then Charles Manson walked away. So Tate and, and, and Sharon Tate, sorry. So Hatami and Sharon Tate stood on the porch and walked and watched Charles Manson walk oh to my Richard Belly's guest house. That's like, if I had a time machine, I'm like going back to that time and I'm being like, wait. <laughs> right? Kill so that motherfucker. Char- <laughs> right? So Charles Manson was walking back to the guest house. He even like paused and turned around and like waved at Sharon Tate and Hitami, and they were like, okay, this dude's just going to the, the guest house. He was just like a weirdo, and they went back inside and continued their photo shoot. So Charles Manson rolled up to the guest house. Now this guest house had a screened-in porch. So Manson, he like opened the door to the screened-in porch, knocked on the front door, you know, did what you normally would do, and Altabelli, he answered, and he recognized Charles Manson because he partied with Manson and the Manson girls back in the Dennis Wilson party days, which was just a few months prior. So he saw Charlie Manson. He was like, yo, like, what are you doing here? I haven't seen you in a while. And um, Charlie just started immediately giving him, like, a bad vibe and just ignored all of his questions and was like, where's Terry Melcher? Um, like, Whoa. I need to know where he is. I need to talk to him, like, about something really important. Not... Charlie wasn't even really acting really suspicious, but like immediately, like Altabelli was just got a really bad vibe. So he refused to give Charlie the real address of Terry Melcher. And he just said, like, you know what? Like, I know he moved to Hollywood, but I don't know much more. Like, Charlie's just letting you know, like, I rent this property, but the rest of this property is rented to Sharon and Roman Polanski. 
Like, I don't rent this to Terry Melcher anymore. I don't know what his new address is. That's so and crazy so, that he would, like, that the the complication or, like, the error would still happen after he told him that. Yeah. So, trying to make the conversation a little bit less awkward because it was very feeling very awkward. Um, Altabelli started talking about Charlie's music and how he was like, you know what? Like I heard you back in the beach boys, Dennis Wilson days, you know, a few months ago and you were actually pretty good. Like I'm actually pretty impressed with your music and I'm excited to see what your future is. Charlie. Whoa. Yeah. You're pretty interesting to me. And he was just trying to make small talk, you know, be nice. Um, that whole thing. And, and Charlie took that as a compliment and as an invitation to become a rock star because Altabelli was a producer. So he was like, oh, my God, like, Altabelli, you like my music? So would you like to record with me sometime? Because I, I can record starting Monday. And Altabelli lied, and he was like, hey, I'm actually going out of town with Sharon Tate tomorrow. Like, we're, we're both going to Rome. But when I get back, I'll let you know. So Manson... He, like, wasn't stoked about about the about that whole situation. So he was like, hey, like, Altabelli, how long are you out of town for? And Altabelli, like, panicked. And he was like, oh, I'm out of town for the next, like, y- like one to two years. Which <laughs> <laughs> is, like, hilarious to be like, oh, I'm not going to be here for one to two years. <laughs> That's, like, the so, definition of privilege. Like, oh, fuck. <laughs> right? So as soon as Altabelli lied and said he was going to be gone for one to two years, Manson obviously felt that was a lie. And he, like, immediately, like, a 180 like switch turned um and he was like okay so he'll be gone for one year so who exactly sang in this house for one year is it terry melcher or is it sharon tate and roman polanski and antebelli altabelli was like it's sharon tate and roman polanski like this is a little weird that you asked me this and then after a few seconds of like weird ass tension altabelli was like you know what charlie like i think it might be time for you to go like this just feels oh really uncomfortable and weird because his vibe oh my like, god completely from yay happy talk to like menaces almost or just menace it, it, it like completely flipped and alta belly just felt extremely uncomfortable so at that point charlie said okay so just sharon and roman live there because i just went to the house and i just met uh, like a photographer that was taking pictures of Sharon, and he mentioned that Sharon and Roman live there. So you're like 100% positive that Terry Melcher will not live there. And Altabelli was like, Yeah, like Terry Melcher's not living there. It's just Sharon <laughs> Tate, Roman Plansky. And like, Charlie, you can't just show up to my house and to like what you assume is Terry Melcher's house. Like, I have different renters. Don't show up. Like, they're none of your business. Like, you're not wanted here. They don't Ooh. want to know you. Like, if you can talk to me privately, but, like, they are they don't want to know you. And obviously, based off of the last three parts that I've talked about Charlie, that struck a chord to him. Yeah. It made him really That rejection, upset. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Altabelli told him, like, you know what? Like, he immediately just felt something really bad. He's like, Charlie, I don't want you to come here again. Like, the next time you come to my house, you need to call me because I don't want to upset my renters. And, like, you're looking for Terry Melcher and anyways. There's no reason for you to come here. So you have to contact me first. Like, do not contact Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski first. Whoa. The next, the, the very next, so Charlie left after that. Now, the very next day, Antebelli flew to Rome with Sharon Tate. And that's when Sharon Tate asked him if that creepy little man <sighs> ever found him. And if they talked about how, f- and then after that, they talked about how fucking weird Manson was. Which oh weirdly God. ties directly into what Corey said about that creepy <laughs> I little know. man. I know. 
Like she knew, Chana. She knew. She had that premonition. Like I why has this not been a movie where she is like the main focus? Like, oh my god. Like And that's that's like Holy like, shit. About Corey's story, that's what makes this like Like I'm almost to tears. Me. Like, are you kidding yeah. me? I oh my god. So fast forward two months. Now this now the Charlie family they were prepping for Helter Skelter, right? They were raising money. They're getting weapons. They're building their underground city, etc. Now Manson, he enlisted Tex Watson, who was one of the most infamous characters in the Manson murders, um, to figure out how to how to make the family a bunch of money. Now Tex came up with the idea to use a former girlfriend of his. Her, her name was Luella to loan some money so we could purchase a fuckload of weed so basic drug dealing just to let you guys know because you know i dated a drug dealer once the more product you buy at once um the cheaper the product is so for example if you buy an eighth of weed let's say it's 20 bucks an eighth right but if you buy an ounce or like a pound more like the price is going to go down so it's less than like 20 bucks an ounce so he called up Luella and he was like, yo, like I want you to front $2,500 and then we can get 25 kilos of weed, which is a fuckload amount of weed. Um, the deal was that he would give <laughs> Luella three kilos of weed for herself and that he would just take the rest and sell and make a huge profit. And he would continue giving her some of the amount of the huge profit until she made back, you know, her investment pretty much. But Texas real plan, however was to take the money, the $2,500, and run away because Charlie Manson told him to make money for the helter-skelter, like, impending doom. Now, Luella, she liked the idea of Tex, you know, of her paying for the weed up front, Tex selling it, they make more money, blah, 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 basic drug dealing. Um, However, she didn't have any money. So she started looking around for someone who had that much weed or at least was willing to front the weed so they could pay them back. So this is when you enter Bernard Crow. So Bernard Crow was a drug dealer in Hollywood and he knew Luella from previous drug deals because you know how it goes. Now, Mm -hmm. when Luella called him up and she was like, yo, can you front the weed? He agreed because she really talked up Tex. He didn't know about the connection with Charlie Manson. Even if he did, that wouldn't really matter because uh, at that point they weren't violent or anything, which is a weird hippie cult. So she was like, hey, like my Tex, my friend, my ex-boyfriend Tex this is a great idea because you just front the weed. He was like, yeah, totally. Like that sounds like a great idea. So the original plan was to meet up with them, discuss the deal, then give them money and his contacts so they could just go get the weed. However, like the second that he met Tex Watson in real life, that's when plans changed. Because Crow met him and he was like, you know what? This guy's sketchy as fuck. Like he didn't trust Oof. Tex at all. So oh, he was wow. Like, okay. okay. He's like, what I'm going to do, he's like, I'm going to go along with this plan as long as possible. But when we get up to the point where I'm going to meet the dealer, I'm going to keep Luella in the car. So that's like collateral. So Tex has like an incentive to come back um, and give Tex the money to go get the drugs. Little did Crow know, though, that Tex was so high and did not care about anything (sighs) that he did not give a fuck about Luella. So they drove to the contact's house. He was like, hey, like, Tex, I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to keep Luella as as hostage. And Tex did not care. So he just took the money. Oh, my God. He's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, he took the money 
and he ran. Like, he fucking ran what away. The fuck? And the drug dealer took Luella and, like, kept her as hostage. Oh, my God. Poor Luella. <laughs> right? So, Crow, like, brought Luella back to his apartment, keeping her as hostage. This is, like, a total Hollywood movie. Yeah. Now, fun fact to note here. I mentioned in the last episode. Tex Watson's first name was actually Charles. Charles <laughs> Manson's name is obviously Charles. Oh, shit. So... Crow had Luella call the ranch because he was like, do you know where Tex would be? Blah, blah, blah. He stole my money. So Luella called the ranch. and She asked to speak to Charles or Charlie. So all of them gave the phone to Charles Manson instead of Tex. Oh, my so God. So Charles got on the phone and they were like, hey, and Luella was like, hey, like, Tex, you stole the money. Like, I'm in danger. I'm about to be killed. Like, you need to come over here and either give Crow the money back or come up with an idea or I'm going to be killed. But Charles Manson was on the phone. So Charles oh Manson, my God. obviously not Tex, was like, okay, like, I don't want this random-ass girl to be killed. I'm going to go and try to deal with this. So, like, Manson tried to explain to Luella, like, hey, like, I'm not Tex. I'm Charlie Manson. He's like, give me the phone to your drug dealer, Crow, and I'll explain to him that, like, I'm not Tex. So Charlie got on the phone with Crow, and he was like, yo, like, I'm not Tex. Tex rolled out a few weeks ago, which was a lie, but anyways. But Crow was like, I don't believe you. You're Tex. You need to come here now. And he, like, loaded a gun. He's like, or I'm going to kill Luella. Charlie, having, like, some sense of, like, remorse and, like, of being a human being, was like, okay, we can't let Luella get killed. We're going to go take care of this. Like, fuck Crow. Um, And he started somewhat panicking at this point. Um, so what he did is he found one of his followers. The name was Thomas Wallman or TJ is what he went by. And he's like, yo, TJ, like, we're going to go to Crow's house. We're going to bring a gun and we're going to save Luella. And like, we're going to try to like clean up this giant mess. And he's like, if things go south, like TJ, you have to be prepared to kill Crow. Like, I'm not going to kill Crow, but you have to be prepared. Damn. So they, they drove to Crow's apartment. TJ was obviously the intended shooter However, as, as soon as they rolled up to Crow's apartment, TJ, like, chickened out. He was like, you know what, Charlie? Like, I'm all in for the drugs and sex, but I can't fucking kill someone. So <laughs> I'm out. Like, you clean up your own mess. Bye. So Manson was like, what a pussy-ass bitch. So he grabbed the 22 Buntline revolver, which is the same exact gun, which would be used later in the Tate, in the Sharon Tate and LaBianca oh murders. Oh, my that's God. that's besides the point. And he walked into Crow's apartment. Um, Crow and Charlie Manson immediately started arguing over Luella, over Tex Watson, the whole thing. And Charlie shot Crow in the stomach. Um, assuming that he was dead, he fled. Now, the next day, Manson heard in the news that a member of the Black Panther was found dead from a gunshot wound in the stomach. Crow was a black man, so Manson assumed that it was Crow that the news was referring to. And he started freaking the fuck out that he just killed a member of the black panther little did charlie know that crow actually survived the gunshot wound so the black panther member that was found dead was not crow and had absolutely no connection to the mansons but charlie manson just assumed because you know coincidences so anyways charlie and the fam were scared shitless because now they thought the whole black panther was going to be after them so and, and all of this was happening while they were still preparing for Helter Skelter, you know, which was the race war. So having the Black Panthers mad at them was like oh worst case God. scenario for the race war. 
and the Black Panthers killing them would obviously complicate their plans to win the race war. Plus, at the same time, there's a lot going on. Charles Charles Manson was scared that a family member would rat him out, saying that Charlie went to Crow's house and killed the guy. So, he started manipulating the family members even more. And so this involved more intense, be- more intense Belladonna trips, more intense acid trips, and like the groups at this point started using Belladonna frequently. Now, oh, like wow. I mentioned, not like I mentioned during my spooky scoop, Belladonna is nightshade and is extremely toxic in a high dose. At lower doses, however, like it makes you trip fucking balls. It is way more intense than an acid trip. Um, and it can last weeks. Like the visual, the visual hallucinations are so intense that you could literally be sitting on a rock outside, like in nature, and think that you're walking and sitting in a cubicle at work. Like if you took too much belladonna, like you, you literally cannot distinguish reality from hallucinations. Now the group started using belladonna regularly. The most common way that, the, that they took belladonna was through tea, and this would be given to them at a low enough dose where they would trip balls for a few days, but, you know, they would sober back up and then start doing acid or whatever. Now, just a fun fact, a few d- this, is, just, this, this is just something to remember. Now, a few days before the Sharon Tate murders, Tex Watson walked into, like, the, like the building that they were making the belladonna tea, and he looked at the belladonna root, and he picked it up in his hands, and he took a giant bite out of the out of the belladonna root, which is the most toxic part of the plant, oh, which is where God. most of the hallucinogenic elements are. And so he was actually tripping balls when he killed everybody at the Tate and LaBianca residence. Oh, so my God. So let's just, like, I just want to pause for a moment oh my and talk God. about how fucking crazy that would be. So both Corey and I have taken acid. Like many of you guys listen to this, you yes. probably haven't taken acid. God bless your soul. But taking acid or hallucinogenic is insane. But if you've done that before, imagine like brutally murdering someone <laughs> while you're oh on my. that hallucinogenic drug. <laughs> no, like, no, you thank you. No, you wouldn't. No, thank know. you. <laughs> and like belladonna is such an intense drug that like you literally cannot distinguish reality from oh my you God. tripping. So, like, you could almost argue that Tex Boxen did not know what he was doing during this time. And they did play they did play into this in Once Upon a, Ho- Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They yeah, because th- in a different way, that's pretty cool, actually. That that makes that the, like, use of drugs in that pretty interesting that he did yeah. it that way. But later, like, during the trial, which I'll go to next episode, but, like, Tex Boxen talked about, like, Hey, like I could have murdered them, but for all I know, like I was at work. Like I was like, oh my I was, god, like, filing paperwork and like filling out a spreadsheet during work because you literally cannot tell the difference between tripping and reality on Belladonna. So it's important to realize, like a lot of these murders That's crazy. happened while tripping balls. So they didn't even really recognize what they were doing, which is so scary and so crazy That's on a different crazy. level. So, in addition to drugging the fuck out of the family, Manson also thought, like, yo, if I have some of the other family members commit violent murders, they probably won't rat me out to the cops for killing Crow. 
So during these crazy ass Belladonna trips, he would talk about he would talk to them about giving up their life for him and that, you know, death wasn't real and blah blah blah. They would have to do what they had to do to protect the family, etc. So he was planting all these seeds in these crazy ass hallucinogenic trips that they were having just to protect himself and to, you know, protect the family, but really it was to protect himself. The dynamic of the group further changed when Manson started inviting the motorcycle gang known as the Straight Satans to live on their ranch to protect the family from the Black Panthers in exchange of the Manson girls' pussies and drugs. And this is when you enter Bobby Busalale, which I don't know how to say his last name, but I'm drunk, <laughs> so I won't know how to say his last name. Same, same. I won't even try. Fuck that. Okay. So, Bobby, he was, and he is a key fucking player. Bobby was a wannabe straight Satan motorcycle gang dude. Um, so he was Oof. he was pretty much like the bitch of the straight. <laughs> that Satan. sounds like not fun. <laughs> yeah, he would literally do anything that they that the straight Satans would tell him to do. So when the straight Satans were like, "Yo, we want to try mescaline." Bobby was like, okay, I actually know someone that makes mescaline. So he contacted his, like, BFF. His name is Gary Hinman. He was a music teacher and a PhD, and a PhD student at UCLA. And he was also a part-time drug dealer because you do what you got to do. Yeah. And he was like, you yo, do, like, Gary. <laughs> he's like, we've known each other for years. Like, I, I, I accidentally joined this motorcycle cult in Charles Manson's clan. Here's a, here's a couple of Manson girls. Like, could you get me some masculine? Now, Gary, he also had, like, a fuckload of inheritance money. So Charlie Manson knew this. So he, he secretly spoke to the Manson girls. And he was like, yo, like, try to get Gary to join the family or at least give him money. Because I talked about in part two and three that that was, like, Charlie's thing was getting people to give them money. So uh-huh. the Manson girls had, like, an, a second motive but Bobby was just trying to get mescaline, just trying to fit into the straight Satans. So anyway, so Bobby and the and the girls rolled up. They went to Gary. They're like, give us some mescaline. Gary's like, okay, I'll fuck some bitches and get some mescaline. Because, you know, what else Whoa. are you going to do? So Gary sold Bobby mescaline. He fucked the girls. But he was like, you know what? Like, I don't want to join Charlie's family. Like, that's a little much for me. Like, I'm just trying to get my PhD in music. Like, can you leave me alone? <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Um, so Same. Bobby and the girls, Bobby and the girls were like, "Okay, that's fair, but thanks for the drugs." So Bobby and the girls rolled back to the Manson, the Spawn Ranch. Bobby gave the mescaline to the straight Satans, awesome. but the straight Satans complained that the drugs were bad and that they needed to get their money back. So, on July twenty fifth, nineteen sixty nine, Bobby, Mary Bruner, and Sarah and Susan Atkins rolled up to Gary's house and they asked for money back or to join the Manson family and then to also give him all his money. Gary told them like fuck right off, like why would you give why would I give you all my money? So Bobby started attacking Gary um, and the two started fighting. Bobby won and he pinned Gary down and he had the girls start tying him up. And then over the next 2 days they attempted to torture him. But these people were so, like, fucking gone and so high that they could barely torture him. So they ended up calling Whoa. Charlie. And they were like, hey, like, we're having a hard fucking time, like, torturing this guy. 
So Charlie like rolled up with the goddamn samurai sword and he looked at Gary and he's like, you're going to give us all your money and your drugs or I'm going to slash your face. And Gary was like, fuck you, you stupid What the fuck? Man. Yeah. So, this so is Charlie. So, Janet, this is so fucking crazy. So Charlie ended up. So Charlie ended up slashing Gary with a motherfucking samurai sword. And then right before he left, Charlie Manson looked at Susan Atkins and he said, uh, you need to steal all of Gary's money or convince him to join. And then he looked at the rest of the group and he said, if that doesn't work, you know what you have to do. What and the so then two days later, <laughs> on July 27, 1969, Bobby had Mary and Susan smother Gary with a pillow while he stabbed <laughs> him to death through the pillow. What? And then to cover their tracks <laughs> no. and start a race war and start Helter Skelter, which was all of them were talking about for months, the girls used Gary's blood to write Political Piggy, which is a direct reference to the Beatles song, like, Piggy or whatever. Oh, my God. And the Black Panther paw in Gary's blood on the wall. And then Bobby, Mary, and Susan stole Gary Hinman's car and rolled out to the ranch. Now, it oh wasn't long until Gary Hinman's body was discovered and the police realized his car was stolen. So about a week later, on August 6th, Bobby is arrested because he was still driving Gary's car like a dumb idiot. <laughs> and then as soon as they they pulled over Bobby, Bobby was like, just to let you know, Gary was killed by two black men. And the police were like, that didn't obviously happen. You're driving a stolen car. So they arrested Bobby. Oh and Bobby, Bobby was like, but it's two black guys. And he was saying black guys to try to start the race war, held to Skelter, which was their whole fucking point. Oh, fuck for, like, that bitch. All of this. Because, you know, like, the only reason, like, everything is just because of the race war, because of Helter Skelter. So, anyways, he was arrested. The police were like, you're fucking guilty. They started looking at the car. They found the murder weapon for Gary in the car. And Bobby was like, it was black guys. And they were like, it was obviously you. You. So, they yeah. charged him for murder. So, at this point, when he was charged for murder, Charlie Manson found out about it. And he told the Chana, entire family. I, Chana, I feel, I feel like you're reading a comic to me. <laughs> I know it's crazy. like I don't I don't believe what you're saying. Holy shit! And it's, this is and it's crazy. All real. So Charlie Manson found out about all this, and he looked at the entire family, and he said, "In quotes, now is the time for Helter Skelter." So Manson oh told the whole fuck. family that they needed to figure out a way to keep things quiet and get Bobby out of jail. So Susan Atkins and a few other girls thought of the idea to replicate a copycat murder elsewhere. So the police would believe Bobby's story that Hinman, that Gary Hinman's killers were Black Panther members and still on the loose. So they felt that their plan would kill two birds with one stone because one, they would get their friend out of jail, and two, they would start a race war. So this was like the perfect helter-skelter kink. Oh my now, fucking God. Manson and Tex, they loved the idea. They were like, you know what? Like, fuck yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do a copycat murder and make them believe this is black people doing it. Because this, again, is two birds with one stone. And they're like, okay, who should we kill first? And Manson said, I know who. It's the residents of 150 Cello Drive, Los Angeles, California, a.k.a. the house (sighs) Terry Milcher used to live in, a.k.a. the house Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski lives in. So just... To reiterate with my theory that I've been talking about the past few episodes, they chose this house specifically because Charlie 
hated Terry Melcher because one, Terry Melcher was responsible for Charlie's music being stolen and used by the Beach Boys, which I went through the last episode. Yeah, but two, yeah, last episode. Like, me- like Terry Melcher gave Charlie the biggest hope to Charlie becoming a rock star, and then Terry Melcher ended up fucking over Charlie, being like, "Fuck you, I'm giving the music to the Beach Boys," just fucking the Manson girls. And moving without telling Charlie. So Charlie felt completely abandoned, which goes into his entire backstory. And also used, which also goes into his backstory. So he's angry and he hates Terry Melcher. And he blames Terry Melcher for him not being a back, for him not being a rock star. So oh him knowing the last address for Terry Melcher is the 150 Chilla Drive, regardless who lives there, that represents Terry Melcher to him. So it didn't matter. Like, it could be Sharon Tate. It could be Terry Melcher. It didn't matter because whoever they killed was Terry Rel- was Terry well, Melcher. Yeah, yeah. He didn't give a fuck at that point. Yeah. Yeah. He was, like, mythologized. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that house represented everything Charlie wasn't. And whoever oh my lived God. in that house needed to pay. Now, the other reason why they chose that house is because Charlie and Tex... Both of them knew the layout of the house because they actually partied with Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson in that specific house before. So they were already familiar with it. So, like, fuck Terry Melcher, and we knew how to navigate the house. So, on August 8th, 1969, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, and Linda Casbian, and Patricia Krenwinkel went to, in quotes, the house where Melcher used to live. Oh my god. As Hansen had instructed him to, in quotes, totally destroy everyone in it and to do it as, in quotes, as gruesome as he can and to, in quotes, leave something witchy. Manson t- told the girls to do everything Tex told them to do without question. I'm going to take a drink because what I'm about to go through is very intense. So everyone take oh a god. drink. Taking a drink. Okay. My body's ready. As the four drove from Spawn Ranch to 150 Cello Drive, Sharon Tate, which was who was eight hundred sorry, Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, and the wife of film director Roman Plansky, was a, was with her friends, Jay Sebring, who Corey mentioned earlier, Wojciech Frykowski, and Frykowski's girlfriend. Abigail Folger. Yes, she is the heiress of the Folger's coffee brand. They're oh my all god. Hang- they're all hanging out with Sharon Tate in Roman Plansky's house. Roman was actually supposed to be home that very day, but he had to push his flight back because he had to get some last mo- minute you know, movie shit done because he was a director. And that whole night started out as normal. They, If you watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. They, you know, had a pool party, they ate some food, they danced, they laughed. Three other super famous people were supposed to be there. They ended up not going there just for, like, you know, normal people reasons, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, basically the gist is Sharon and her friends, they ate dinner, they swam in the pool, they, they listened to music, some of them got high, they just hang out. Like they, it was just a regular night. Just think of you hanging out with your friends. That's what it was. Like, the people you trust and love most in the entire world are in your home. Nothing seemed out of ordinary. Everything seemed normal. Meanwhile, Tex, Susan, Linda, and Patricia arrived a little past midnight, and they and they parked their car at the bottom of the driveway. Tex, he climbed up the telephone pole. 
He cut the phone lines to the house to make sure that no one could call for help. Then the group started walking up the driveway and they approached the gate. They decided to climb a bushy or like a brush, like a brushy, bushy embankment to the right of the gate because they didn't know if the gate had an alarm and they didn't know how to um, make the alarm off, I guess. I don't know the words because I'm drunk. But anyways, <laughs> so they, they drove, they walked, they looked at the gate, they they went to the right, they drived up, they, sorry, they walked up the embankment of the, of the gate, they climbed through the brush and they the brush and they start they finally saw the house and they started walking towards the house right when they started walking towards the house headlights turned on on a car and the car started driving towards the gate tex motioned the girls to stay back and he continued walking out of the brush and he walked right in front of the car and he motioned the driver to stop 18 year old steven parent was there this is just a classic case of the wrong place, wrong time. Oh. Because he was just there trying to sell a radio to the property's caretaker, William Gerritsen, who was staying in the guest house. He was just there to sell a radio. 18 years old, no connection to anybody. Damn. Just trying to sell a radio to go to college and go on a date. Poor Stephen Parent. He was just driving away. All of a sudden, Tex Watson showed up, stopped the man. Tex Watson rolled up the car. Stephen is asking, what's going on? Why are you stopping me? And Texan whipped out a gun. And he looked at Stephen. And he said, why are you here? And Stephen just started begging and begging and begging and crying. Oh, my God. Saying, please don't hurt me. Oh, sorry. This part gets me really emotional because it's really sad. But he said, like, if you let me go, I won't tell anybody what happened here tonight i won't tell you i won't tell anybody who you are like i'm so young i'm just here to sell my radio like fuck me like i'm supposed to be home like an hour ago anyways like let me go like i beg you and he just begged and begged and begged and tex made him believe that he was gonna drive away safe but then he pulled out a knife and he lunged towards him and as as Stephen Parent tried to fight back, Tex just started stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and stabbing. And he stabbed so aggressively that the knife actually severed all of his tendons in his hand. And Stephen Parent was screaming in agony and pain. And the stabbing was so aggressive that it cut off the watch off of his wrist. And it continued on until he was dead. And then right before he died, Tex Watson pulled out the gun and shot him in the stomach four times, which officially killed this poor little teenager who was just there at the wrong fucking place, wrong time. And then after Tex Watson killed him, he turned his attention on the house and he motioned to Linda Casbian and the rest of the girls and he pointed towards the house and he started sneaking up to the house he climbed through windows and opened the date the gate and then he motioned susan and patricia to, to walk through the door and he looked at linda casbian and he told her stay watch towards the gate and let us know if anyone's coming while this was happening sharon tate was upstairs in her bedroom which perfectly fl- f- perfectly fits what Corey mentioned earlier tonight or today Jay Sebring was in the guest room 
Wojciech Frykowski was asleep on the couch in the living room, and Abigail Folger was in a guest room. Tex Watson told the girls to find anyone else in the house and bring them into the living room. Meanwhile, he stood over Frykowski, who was asleep on the couch, and he kicked him as hard as he could in the head, like Spartan-style kicked. And he woke Frykowski up to a gun right against his head. Frykowski started asking, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? What are you doing here? And Tex responded, I am the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. At this oh point, God. Sharon, Jay, and Abigail were all brought to the living room. Tex bound Frykowski's hands with a towel and had Susan Adkins watch him while he had Sharon and Jay lie on their stomachs while he tied rope around their necks and threw the rope over the beams in the living room. Jay begged them to let Sharon be okay. He said Sharon was eight and a half months pregnant. She was due any second. She shouldn't be on her stomach. Please let her at least sit on her back or sit on her or lay on her back. And he was begging and begging. And meanwhile, while they were all thinking this was a robbery, Abigail told Patricia, hey, I have money in my purse because I am the fucking Folgers heiress. Let me go take you to my purse and I'll give you everything. So Patricia Krenwinkel, she followed Abigail to the guest bedroom to get some cash. As Patricia followed Abigail to the bedroom, Susan watched Frokowski and Tex listened to Jay's pleas for Sharon Tate. And as, as Jay was begging and begging and begging, Tex, Tex got tired of it and shot Jay in the stomach. And this is when chaos ensued. Oh my God. Frowkowski freed himself, and he began fighting Susan. Susan started stabbing his leg with a knife. Tex started stabbing Jay seven times, and then he turned his attention to Frowkowski. Abigail managed in the other room to run through a guest room into the backyard slash pool area. <gasps> Patricia Go. followed. Patricia followed right behind her, Pushed her to the ground and started stabbing and stabbing and stabbing. Oh. And that's when Abigail said, I'm already dead. Why are you still stabbing me? I'm already dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. Frakowski managed to fight his way out of the front door in Texas and Susan's grasp. And he was crawling out of the front door, screaming for help. And Tex caught up to him, struck him over the head with a gun, stabbed him and shot him twice. After he thought... That Frakowski was dead. He got up. He walked towards the backyard, towards the pool where Patricia was stabbing Abigail and helped Patricia kill Abigail. Abigail was stabbed 28 times. Meanwhile, Linda Casbian, who was on the lookout, was horrified at the screaming and the stabbing and the gunshots that she was hearing. So she actually ran into the house and pretended that somebody was coming to try to stop the murders from continuing. But Tex, Susan, and Patricia didn't believe her. Tex called her a liar and said, Go back and look at the fucking car, you stupid whore. Linda Casbian, she ran out back to the car, to the car and she was about to run away. But then she remembered that she just had a baby. She thought oh to herself, God. If I leave, they will kill my baby. And so she sat there and stayed and listened and waited. <gasps> After that, Tex went back into the house and realized that Frykowski was still alive. So he walked over to, to Frykowski, who was at this point crawling on the front lawn. And he started stabbing him and stabbing him and stabbing him. And in total, Frykowski was stabbed 50 
one times. And he was struck with a gun 13 times and shot twice. He was struck so hard with the gun that it actually bent the gar- the barrel of the gun. And it oh my broke God. off on, on one side of the gun's grip. Now with all this happening, the screams echoed through the house. Sharon Tate was alive. And she was just begging Susan Adkins for her baby's life. She looked at Susan Adkins and she said, take me captive. I beg you. Oh, sorry. I get really emotional listening to this. But she begged and she begged and she begged. And she said, keep me alive. Let me have my baby and just murder me right right after. I don't care what happens to me. Just let my baby be safe. And Susan oh Atkins, who had a baby one month prior, so Fuck. knew what it was like to be a mother, knew what it was like to give birth, knew what the pregnancy was like, looked at Susan, looked at Sharon and said she didn't care and proceeded <sighs> to, to stab Sharon Tate in the stomach 16 times. After every single person was murdered through either stab or gunshot wounds, after every single person was dead, Susan Adkins wrote pig on the front door and Sharon <sighs> Tate's blood and the group left. Now this is a spooky scoop for y'all. About three quarters of a mile away from the house was an overnight camp for young kids and teens. On that night, a camp counselor and every single child in that camp heard the screams of Sharon Tate, <gasps> J.C. Bring, oh my God, I didn't know that. And, and Abigail Folger. <laughs> every single person heard them get murdered and they heard silence for the rest of the night. Yet somehow, the caretaker living in the guest house in the, ba- in the backyard, William Gerritsen, didn't hear anything. At 8.30 o'clock in the morning, that that morning, the housekeeper, Winifred Chapman, showed up for her work, and she discovered all the bodies. She ran to a neighbor's house and called the police. Shortly thereafter, um, the gruesome murders at Sharon Tate Lomoplansky's house became national news. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's not <laughs> over yet. Jenna, I'm, like, already a different person. <laughs> Yeah, it's not over. <laughs> that same. Wait, we all need a drink. I just like imagine. I just imagine somebody listening to this in their car and being like, "What the?" F-? <laughs> like from Me the time too. that you, from the time that you like drove from your house to your work, you're a different person. <laughs> yeah, and we're not even done yet. Fuck. So that exact same day, August 9th, nineteen sixty nine, Leno who was a supermarket executive, and his wife, Rosemary, who was an owner of a dress shop, their last name is La Bianca, they spent the day at the lake with their two kids, Susan and Frank. So Frank was a 15-year-old. Um, he ended up actually deciding to spend the night with his friends in the lake because he, you know, he's a teenager. He wants to spend the night. So his mom and dad, Len and Rosemary, were like, okay, that's fine. You spend the night with your kids. We're going to go back with Susan. So they they drove back with Susan, um, and as soon as they got into their car, they turned it on, they started driving. All they could hear on every single radio station was news about the Sharon Tate murders. So Rosemary, she Jesus. started freaking the, the fuck out because she, started, she lived in L.A. 
her and Lena live in LA and Lena was telling her like Rosemary it's okay like what are the chances of us getting killed by these same killers we're okay and the whole drive home Rosemary is just in full blown panic mode just fully freaking the fuck out same um, <laughs> so they dropped off same their daughter Rosemary. Susan at her apartment and they ended up going to the gas station about 1 o'clock in the morning to fill up their car they uh, Leno ended up actually talking to the gas station attendant about the Sharon Tate murders for like 15 minutes got like, uh. a, like a newspaper about it and everything and they talked about how crazy and they're like what are the chances about, like, of that happening like the same killers and then Leno and Rosemary went home now in the, er- in the early hours of August 10th um, Rosemary was in the bedroom getting ready for bed and Leno was in the living room reading that newspaper that he bought from the gas station meanwhile Charles Manson, Tex Watson Patricia Quenwinkle, Leslie Van Houten Susan Adkins, Linda Casbian and Steve Grogan were making their way to the La Bianca's house now Manson was not thrilled with the chaos of the Sharon Tate murders um, so he ended up going to the La Bianca's house to show them how it's done. Um, he was really unhappy because Sharon Tate and all of them, it was pretty fast until they realized they were going to get murdered. Like, there was no moment of, like, peace or, like, order to the whole murdering rampage. So Manson was really annoyed about the whole situation. So Manson went to the La Bianca's house to kind of show them how it was done. So they drove up to the La Bianca's house. And Charlie Manson and Tex Watson walked up they, and they saw Leno um, LaBianca sleeping in the living room. They're like, okay, this is perfect. Let's just break in and get this fucking done. So they broke in. They looked at him sleeping. They realized, okay, Rosemary's sleeping in the other room. So Manson stood over Leno, pulled out a gun out of his pants, pointed it right at Leno's forehead, and woke up Leno. Lanson opened his eyes and saw a crazy little psychopath Charlie Manson standing over, standing over him with a gun. And he said, what do you want? And Manson said, you're not here to kill you as long as you cooperate. Then he had Tex wake up Rosemary and they brought her into the living room. Rosemary started panicking because she just heard about the Sharon Tate murders. But Leno told her, calm down, sweetheart. We're going to be okay. Tex covered their heads in pillows, in pillowcases. He bound them with lamp cords. And then Leno told Manson, I will do anything to keep us alive, to keep her alive. He's like, I am a executive manager of grocery store. I have the key to the safe. Here's the key. Like, go to the grocery store. Take whatever you want. I will not say anything. Take every dollar. Take every penny. Take every food. I don't care. Whatever you want. Take anything from your house. Like, I want Rosemary to be okay. Rosemary offered her jewelry um, and every and all of her cash in her purse. She offered her clothes, everything. Everything to them. Manson was actually taken aback at Leno and Rosemary because he, because they truly and honestly believed that they weren't going to hurt them. And so he was so uncomfortable with the fact that they were about to murder them, even though like Rosemary and Leno didn't think they, that they were, that Charlie ended up leaving. He later like made it, he later said that it was like 
pigs waiting to be slaughtered at a slaughterhouse. Oh. Like, that's how he compared it yeah. to. And so he couldn't do it. So he ended up leaving. So he walked outside to the car the and he ordered Patricia and Leslie to go inside and take care of the rest. And he ended up getting inside of the car and he looked at Susan, Linda, and Steve and he said, we're fucking out of here. And he left. He left Tex and Patricia and Leslie to fend for themselves. So Patricia and Leslie, they rolled up, they entered the house and Tex was standing over Leno and he said, hey, take Rosemary back into the bedroom because she has money for us. Leno, as soon as he heard that Tex ordered them to take Rosemary to the bedroom, he realized that he and his wife were in danger, that this was no longer a robbery. He said, we're going to die. So I'm going to fucking go out fighting. So he started fighting Tex. And Tex, who had a gun that had like a bayonet at the end of it. Because oh, my he God. Because here we are, the Manson family. Because Texas. Tex yeah. just started stabbing and stabbing and stabbing Leno. And Rosemary in her bedroom could hear the love of her life getting stabbed in the other room. And she heard him screaming and screaming and begging for Rosemary to stay alive. So she grabbed the lamp that was tied to her neck and she started swinging at the girls and beating the shit out of the Manson girls. And the Manson girls were just yelling for help, yelling for Tex. So Tex took a break from stabbing Leno and he went to the bedroom and he overpowered Rosemary, threw her on the bed and started stabbing her and stabbing her. Oh my God. Stabbing her. And while he was stabbing her, he looked at the Manson girls and he said, Go get knives from the kitchen, and you need to kill Rosemary. I'm not doing this. And then he got off Rosemary and went back to Leno, and he resumed his attack. He stabbed Leno a total of of 12 times, and he carved war into his stomach. Tex then went back to Rosemary, and he found Patricia Krenwinkel stabbing her. But Leslie Van Houten wasn't. Leslie was in the other room, covering her ears and staring at a wall about what was going on. So Tex looked at Leslie and he said, you have to fucking stab Rosemary or we're going to fucking kill you. So Leslie then went into Rosemary's bedroom, in their bedroom, started stabbing, stabbing, and stabbing. And she ended up stabbing Rosemary 16 times in the back and the exposed butt while Patricia stabbed Rosemary in the neck. These girls were stabbing so hard that they both ended up stabbing their knives. In total, Rosemary LaBianca was stabbed 41 times. And the majority of those were done post-mortem, meaning she was already dead and they continued stabbing. So continuing the copycat helter-skelter idea, Patricia Kenwinkle wrote death. Sorry, she wrote death. Patricia Kenwinkle wrote Rise and Death to Pigs on the Walls and Helter Skelter on the Refrigerator Door in the Victim's Blood. Fun fact, she pa- she spelled Helter Skelter wrong. She spelled <laughs> it as Helter Skelter. So, like, the fucking goal of the Manson family, Patricia Kenwinkle spelled wrong, but whatever. Um, but after <laughs> she spelled Helter Skelter wrong, she ended up giving Leno... 14 more puncher wounds with a carving fork and then she left the carving fork jutting out of his stomach and then she planted a steak knife in his throat oh my god and the steak knife in his throat goes against or sorry it goes with the piggies beetle songs they talked about 
like using a fork and knife to like feed your throat so anyways that was like a a nod towards the beatles white album song now after she was done the three because charles manson already left had to hitchhike home so after they were done stabbing these people more than 75 times collectively and writing uh, shit in their they blood, got they had home? hitchhike home yeah and they succeeded what the fuck that's ridiculous because <laughs> manson took off earlier with three other manson members and apparently they took off to kill another like actor slash famous person in venice beach but Linda Casbian, if you remember, fuck? I mentioned her during the Tate murders. She's the one who tried to stop the Tate murders because she was so horrified at what she was hearing. Knowing that <sighs> she was being forced to go murder someone else, she purposefully went to, to the wrong person's house, which prevented the Mansons from murdering another person. So yay, Linda Casbian, for preventing yes, another murder. Bitch. But also boo you for like you know being there when the Tates happened. But whatever. But she prevented another murder because yeah, she was like, she prevented a murder. Go her. Murders. Yeah, but still like Susan Adkins, who was like a like the biggest psychopath at all this, um, she still like shit violently on that on the uh, staircase or like stairwell that led to that actor's apartment. What the fuck? <laughs> now around ten thirty p.m. on August tenth. 15-year-old Frank Struthers, who was Rosemary's son and Leno, Leno LaBianca's stepson, he just saw his parents the day before at the lake. I mentioned that probably 30 minutes ago. He returned from the lake. From the lake. He rolled up to his parents' house, and he immediately had a bad feeling. He looked at his parents' house, and he saw that their window shades were, st- were still drawn down, which wasn't normal. Because normally Rosemary had her window shades up. And then he noticed that Leno's speed, speedboat was still attached to the family car. And he just looked at the house and he had like an immediate bad off. Oh no. So, and he was 15 years old. And he, so he went to his neighbor's house and he called his older sister Susan and her boyfriend Joe Dorgan. So Susan and Joe, they met Frank at the house just a few minutes later and the three went inside. And immediately, as they opened the door, this this the stench of blood and decay just no. hit them. And they looked, and they saw blood everywhere. And they're only fifteen and eighteen. And they looked in the living room, and they saw Leno's body with the steak knife sticking out of his throat. They ran from the house, screaming and sobbing and crying. They called the police, and the police came, and they discovered Leno and Rosemary LaBianca's body. And that is where we're going to leave off today, everybody. Damn. Oh, my God. The, the, the so, like, murder just continues, Channa. <laughs> I know. It's, so, anyway. It's ridiculous. I'm like, oh, my God, another story of murder. Fuck. <laughs> this is intense. So, how's your I love sex it. life? <laughs> so, that's, Char- um, that's part four, Charlie Manson. So, next week, Damn. we're going to go through how they figured out it was Charlie Manson. And then how we're going we're gonna to go through the trial, the or sorry, the arrest, the trial, the conviction, and the post-trial because that's equally as interesting as the trial. But, so yeah, next week completes part five of Charlie Manson, y'all. But yes. those are the murders you've been waiting for of Sharon Tate and the La Biancas. Oh my God, I'm so I'm so like happy how they tied into each other, both of our segments. 
I know. We never do that. That's a good that's a good segment. Oh, your your fort collapsed. Yeah, it was me. No. I'm too drunk. Yeah, I'm I'm crazy drunk at the same time. That was enthralling. I didn't know that much murder happened after the Sharon Tate murders. I thought it was very I assumed it was very like quick for them being arrested I mean, and it it was a day after the Sharon Tate's that that's true happened. So it was like one one and then like it, it's a few months before they get arrested. Okay, yeah. So, well I guess that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense then. Yeah. I didn't know the like the murder that led up to the Sharon Tate. I thought Sharon Tate was the first, not uh-huh. realizing that Bobby did the first with Gary Hinman. So that was really interesting for me to learn was like, oh, like the so like the whole purpose of Sharon Tate and La Bianca was helter skelter because of the race war, but it was also to get their friend out of jail. So it was like it was a two it was a kill two birds with one stone type of deal, right? Damn. Like it was helter is race war for sure because they like did the whole pigs, Black Panther symbols and whatnot, but it was also to get a Manson family out of jail. So it was really interesting for me to learn that it wasn't just but helter skelter because a lot of people try to pin the Sharon Tate and the La Bianca murders and just Helter Skelter, but that wasn't just the case. It but was yeah. to get a Manson family out of jail, which like all really started at Charlie wanted to be a rock star, so it all really comes back to that. I don't know. The whole thing's very interesting to me. No, yeah, that's, that's it's. All. I agree. Very crazy. Um, what has been going on? I guess like nothing different, right? Like, it's quarantine. Quarantine. So. Yeah, I working out. I got a gym to go to, so that's great. See how long that like goes through and lasts. Um, Forever. Yeah. Right. So just like working out, doing work, and like writing and stuff. That's pretty much what's going on. Yeah, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> sorry no sex actually that's been pretty hard but it's okay <laughs> you know what it's like it's it's a small price to pay <laughs> jordan and i have been having sex obviously because we live together i've just been the problem yeah the problem that we have right now is i work between 12 to 14 hours a day and he works between 10 to 12 hours a day so the, by the time he gets home we're both so exhausted that even the thought of sex is like so exhausting where we're both like please can we just like cuddle and watch a movie <laughs> so it, oh that's so cute really, oh my but god yeah that's the whole thing where it's been nice to have like someone that i love so much and i'm so like deeply intimate with yeah where, like cuddling and watching a movie is almost just as satisfying as sex right now because oh yeah satisfying the same needs of like being with my partner but it's been oh, interesting that's so though, cute. the past past weeks of both of us being like we need something else other than sex like we need love and like cuddling and like pure just cuteness yeah like like just intimacy yeah intimacy is important yeah Yeah, we just need like pure intimacy right now because life just life's so weird right now it is crazy weird being tested for coronavirus it's been a very weird like if you like just imagine like if in your like high school life somebody looked at you and was like hey what's going to happen is like, this is going to happen. Like we're going to be in a pandemic and nobody can see each other. Like if somebody told me that in high school, I'd be like, what the fuck? Like you're, you're, you're weird, but this is like like, reality. (laughs) I know it's so weird. Yeah. It it, it doesn't seem that weird, but at the same time, I think it is like, it's just the one, the one big positive to quarantine life or to like the past week and a half, which is weird is Corey and I have seen each other more in the past week and a half than we have in forever. 
Which is fun. Yeah. Because we've been a, we've both been at work the most. Uh, we both know le- how to do the most. Uh huh. So it's it's been fun being with each other every day. Cause I'm like, oh yeah, I'm with my best friend again. We're like, like hey, what's up? <laughs> and we yeah. got tested, so we know we're both negative for the moment. <laughs> for now, for the moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, but regardless, Corey and I are okay. And no matter what happens, we're at least still working together. Oh and, yeah. And, and like BFFs through it all. So yeah, things fine. are things are happening. <laughs> okay, so let's end. Yeah. Let's end. So okay, our question so, to you guys is. Anyways. House. Your. Sex. Life. Bye guys. Bye. See y'all next week we're so drunk